All right, well, man, we are so stoked to have Matt Errett with us today. Um, we don't always do a lot of these kind of things, but we're starting to um, open up to the public more more so. And, and, and we uh, we met Matt a little while ago. I met him. Actually, Matt, I never told you, but I met you through Robert David Steele. And right. that's how I, well, at least that's how I saw you. And, and when I saw you, so I've been watching you since 2020, 20. And, and or 2020 and, and it's just been it's been phenomenal for me to start to revisit so much of history that gets glossed over or whitewashed in different ways and it's just it, it's encouraging to have somebody like yourself who's who's done the study and can be so eloquent at sharing like every time you share um, one of your stories or some of your history it's like you're painting a masterpiece for us you know, so you, you, you truly are an artist in your own right. I, I just wanted to say that to you and I want to pass it over to Brandy so she can give the, 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 the people out there, your, your credits, you might say. Uh, you know? Oh, right. Well, uh, thank you, Matt, for being with us today and, uh, giving us some of your valuable time. You know, we, uh, we believe that time multiplied times energy equals art. And you are definitely sharing your art with us today. And, um, <laughs> You're the editor-in-chief of the Canadian Patriot Review and co-founder of the Rising Tide Foundation with your beautiful and brilliant wife, Cynthia Chung, and um, really just looking forward to our discussion on uh, peace, prosperity, and progress. Um, and Vinny, I'll hand it over to you. Yeah, so we definitely want you to explore a bit of the the history of peace, progress, and prosperity, but we were we were wanting to go back to that period, you know, you might call it now the second Silk Road or when the Silk Road was um, once again revived, you know, over in Asia. Yeah, absolutely. You know. By the way, um, your viewers, and, and thank you guys. I, I really appreciate what you guys are doing. I love your spirit. And uh, if you, the audience wonders at some point why it is that you and I have, have similar T-shirts. Oh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh yeah i i just received this this wonderful gift from you guys uh this morning so i decided what what better way to have a conversation but with your uh your organizations i, I guess this is your organization right that you or this is just a, a personal pet project that you decided to oh, make no, this Brandy, imagery no no you got it yeah um, well it, it, the, our organization is the alternative educational alliance and we did recently create a uh created as a ministry so we are the aea ministries and it's a vision that I had 30 years ago to create this organization. And now that we're going public with it, um, the actual artwork manifest essence was done by our dear friend, uh, VCJ, uh, who's a, a skateboard artist and, uh, a, a dear friend of ours. And so he basically allowed us to use it for our website and oh, we just love to share it with people. <laughs> it, it's a, it's a great little design. So anyway, yeah, that that's that that explains why we have met. <laughs> uh, as far as yeah, the the question that you raised uh, to to kickstart this whole discussion, and thank you for that introduction, really really warm. Um, on the issue of the the Silk Road, yeah, that that is such an important part, not only of the current world dynamic, because as as I've made the point in a lot of my interviews and in my book series that I've co-authored with my wife, uh, Cynthia the world is really being pulled into two different futures, two different uh, ideas of the way natural law operates, the way that human systems must function um, in accordance with certain ideals. 
The, the, the difference being that one system, one paradigm, which is vying for uh, dominance in the new, what will come online to replace the currently dying order. Um, and anybody watching this wondering like, huh, what do you mean our order is dying? Yeah, our order, the, cur- the financial system that we've been living in, that we were born into, um, is a time bomb that is melting down. It, it is collapsing. We're living through that. So there's a vying over who and what will influence that new system. One system, um, I think a lot of people are probably aware, most people watching this are probably aware, is uh, a disgusting, ugly def- perversion of anything trying to be natural law. It, it is premised on certain ideas of human nature, certain ideas of government, certain ideas of the universe that are embedded into the idea that we have, we're overpopulated. The new system has to be governed by a, a massive be- behavioral modification to tr- to transform global society's values into something which is in accordance with a slave class that would go along with or even desire their own undoing, their own reduction of living standards, getting rid of the idea of ownership of property, um, the idea of, of you know, con- having abundance. That that sh- Those are supposed to be the expectations of the past obsolete age. And the new age is, a, is an age of scarcity. It's an age of misanthropy where we think of ourselves as we, you know, as the viruses that we really are, right? <laughs> Carrying a, around a nice, healthy guilt complex from a really young age. Um, and, uh, and so that's just a really ugly thing. Um, it, it's premised on certain other things like the need for dismantling any type of ancient civilizational traditions, any forces that tie us to our idea of God, the creator as, you know, something beyond our limited atomized identities. Um, the idea of the family unit also has to be dismantled. This is an ongoing, this has been a thing which has been going on for a long time, right? Um, and the idea of the nation state, the idea of nationalism in a healthy sense, there's obviously unhealthy versions of nationalism. We've seen Hitler. Now I I would say that that's not really nationalism. That's, um, a fascist form of oligarchism masquerading as nationalism with some blood and soil cultish biases. Um, that, but that's what we're told in school. Even that, that is all nationalism is, is, you know, exactly. (laughs) So there's something more to it. Uh, that's obviously hyper simplistic and wrong. Um, there's something that does scare the hell out of the oligarchy uh, about this idea of sovereign nation states and our ability to tune our own identity to the general welfare. Like JFK said, ask not what you can, your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. That, that was emblematic of the better way of thinking of a nationalism that scares empire, which is what, when you take all that into consideration, this is, has a label great reset, you know, um, in opposition to that, the other more healthy um, system vying for influence and dominance in that new replacement architecture is the, the multipolar alliance. Um, it is not premised on depopulation at all. When you look at Russia, China, India, Iran, other countries working in that Eurasian zone, they're representing diverse ancient civilizations. They're putting online projects to pull people out of poverty over, over 800 million of whom have been pulled out of poverty just in China alone, but they're extending that model to other countries in Africa and beyond so that other countries have the ability to stand on their own two feet and feed themselves with their, with their own industrial base, their own engineering and educational base to create new generations of specialists instead of just having, you know, like we've been doing in the West, mining cartels going in, raping Africa and giving them nothing in return except for maybe 
a small coterie of elites that we allow to be like local governors that are highly corrupt, right? In, in, a, in an organized crime syndicate in Kenya or Nigeria or Congo or wherever in the world. That's what the empire does by creating fifth columns of encrusted uh, organized crime beholden to a higher power. So the, China's approach is very different on so many levels. It is empowering sovereign nation states. It is defending these ancient civilizational forces within their, their cultures that they don't want to sacrifice. And the form that it is taking in, as a living expression has been known as the Belt and Road Initiative. It has been one term that was used by Xi Jinping in 2015, uh, sorry, 13, for the first time in uh, October in, at an event in Kazakhstan. And it's otherwise come to be known as well as uh, the New Silk Road. And the New Silk Road is now, it, it has about, it's grown a lot since 2013. It's a very flexible, modular, uh, managerial system which it does involve central government. Uh, it does involve national banks, not private banks, but it does involve uh, ex- like a lot of powerful uh, federal governments that wield uh, power, which scares a lot of Westerners who are, who've just seen that type of thing misused so much. So a lot of people, they're like, oh, central power, that means that they're oligarchic, tyrannical, and evil. Not really, because if you look at what they do with that power, so power is not a thing unto itself. It's power for what? It, it's actually transmitting large-scale infrastructure investments into things that are breathtaking, like the, the size of like something like 20 Marshall Plans um, is what we've now been seeing all over Eurasia, Africa, and beyond. So it's, point, it's, it's increasing longevity, quality of life, quality of education, um, empowering nations. And like I said, this whole thing is premised on... Um, Originally, an east-west transit corridor, systems of high-speed rail, conventional rail roads, and development complexes going from east to west, but also with nodes going through the Middle East, through Pakistan, um, into Afghanistan, into Iran, into Iraq and Syria as part of a reconstruction program, into Africa with Ethiopia being a key node. That's why there's regime change targeting uh, Ethiopia right now, and there has been for about a year and a half. That's why Pakistan has just been ousted uh their their government under imran khan has been ousted under a u.s coup uh just this week because he's playing too positive of a role in that broader chemistry um but this didn't come out of 2013 despite that it's a very powerful process it's very creative very anti-entropic that means like uh, it's open to create more wealth than you use more energy in the system is created over time than is used in the system at any given moment that's the definition in, in, a, in a simple sense of anti-entropy. Entry, entropy is just the system that right. defines all systems as being closed, as being as always consuming more energy than it, than it produces, like a, like a machine or a, an engine of a car that's always going to be using more gas, right? Mm-hmm. So there'll always be less gas as the pistons move and burn, burn you know, heat or cause heat to make the system right. work so that it's always approaching a heat death. So that's the, the, the difference. The, ours, our system here is governed by the logic of entropy, that there's a, a, a closed system of heat death defining our future, which is why they're all obsessed with the oligarchy in the West is obsessed with depopulation. In the, in the East, not so. So back to your original question. Okay. So this didn't come from nowhere. The, the Silk Road idea was a revival of an ancient Chinese foreign policy that first arose in uh, 200 or so uh, BC before, uh, the common era or before Christ. Um, and it was something that emerged out of the early Han dynasty. 
And uh, that came out, that was, that was a, a unifying period in the, in the case of China that came out of the warring states period where you had these different, you know, war over like warlords pretty much vying for, for dominance w- with different subgroupings in, in China for a very long time. It was, it was a period of chaos, the warring states. It was, the, the name says it all. Yeah. So coming out of that, there was, there was a unifying uh, process where one of the, the groups took a dominant position, but, it, but their view wasn't to then suppress or have a totalitarian slave state as some other groups did want. Um, the Han uh, grouping saw a giant Confucian revival. So they, they, they brought in Confucianism as their governing philosophy. There's a lot of parallels to Christianity in that sense and Christ's teachings in terms of the idea, you know, some of the core principles of Confucianism involve the idea of, uh, Doing not unto your, uh, doing not unto others as you would not have them do unto you. It's kind of like the inversion of Christ do unto others, right? Uh, the, the golden rule, the idea of, uh, of, uh, Ren, of, of an agopic love that is our true nature with our fellow men that, and women. Um, the idea of Li as, as a sense of principle in the universe, um, that organizes everything. The idea of a mandate of heaven that the Confucians, uh, abide by that that man's law is only legitimate to the degree that it abides by the the mandate of heaven god's law right and to the degree that it defies that it loses its validity and that's why people like mencius the follower of confucius is seen as a a revolutionary or reactionary by people who who only like order because it's like you know it puts a lot of power into the people <laughs> so that's what what came about as a governing philosophy and, and coming out of that was this idea of looking outward beyond your border and the the silk road originally came about as this idea okay well let's Let's have communion uh, with the the Arab states. Let's let's begin to build a relationship with even the the early Romans of the Roman Republic and have commerce going east west. That also involved India, that involved um, Africa as well through the the maritime version of the Silk Road. So it had an overland and maritime base. And was this also the time when um, like the houses of wisdom were coming together? Like was that at the beginning? Not yet. Not that came later. Okay. So the House of Wisdom are vitally important, but that that's something that occurred only after. So this first expression of the Silk Road. Okay, you're still in the previous one. Okay. Yeah, the first. So I guess version version 1.0. Silk Road. 1.0. Uh, and maybe there were other ones previous, you know, that have, that have been scrubbed out of history. That's possible because there's a lot that there's a lot of our deep history that has been uh, erased. Yeah. That, that also indicate that people like Pythagoras were studying in India. Wow that India was like a, a fountain of great learning and knowledge that ties into, uh, the, you know, many of the things that were going on in, in Greece in uh, the time of Solon. Right. So, but that's stuff that's tough to talk about because it's been so deconstructed. Um, maybe that's for the future historians to piece that together. <laughs> but all that to say, the, um, this lasted for about 400 years and it was only with the collapse of the Han dynasty in around 200 AD that, um, that the Silk Road foreign policy of exchange, cultural exchange, inventions, other things dismantled itself. And um, Asia went into a, a state of turmoil for a, a few centuries. And that turmoil endured until about the period of 640, 650 mm-hmm. AD, when a new, um, a new government was, uh, was able to take power in China. And they, they restored the Silk Road. And this was the, ta- the Tang Dynasty. It went on from about 650 all the way up until the beginning of the Song Dynasty in the, uh, the early 10th century. 
So that the Tang Dynasty basically said, okay, we're going to revive the spirit of commerce, of commun- interrelations with the the East, and uh, you know there there was there was a lot that came out of that. It's a highly dense period of potential. One of the things was with the the Muslim world. Uh, you know, at, at, before the the Tang Dynasty was able to to uh, gain full control of their of their the different territories that they had gained control of from the warlords that had taken over for a couple hundred years, um, there was an insurgency. There was a civil war. It was called the uh, the Anxi Rebellion, and one of the leading generals had a giant army at his disposal, and he had illusions of grandeur. And he wanted to just be the emperor. So the, this thing started a, a giant civil war, a big bloodbath. And it almost dismantled the early Tang dynasty before it could even like learn to walk. And uh, and the thing that came in and saved it was in a negotiation, an agreement with the the newly formed uh, Abbasid dynasty That's... of uh, the, I think it was the father or the grandfather of, I think it was the grandfather of Harun al-Rashid. And um and what was arranged was that the the Muslims who had gained they they were a, a brand new religion at that time, um, you know Muhammad had just just recently died, um, and and so they had uh, developed a, a military cap- uh, capability, and they said okay well we will defend you, and they they deployed something like ten thousand uh, soldiers to China to help fight against the uh, the uprisings of the Angshi rebellion, and succeeded, and as a reward. They were given uh, territory, land to settle in uh, eastern China. This became the basis. This is the reason why the Chinese have a big Muslim uh, population in the, sorry, in the West. I said East, I meant West. Um, and that's the Uyghur region today. So that, that, that's, so that's, that's there. So they saved China and, and by saving it and keeping it whole um, and integrating into the, the civilization, the Silk Road was able to be revived and coming out of this was again, a new unification as really a, a positive ecumenical uh, process of these various faiths and various ethnic groups from the, the period of Harun al-Rashid um, at the end of the eighth century um, AD. That's, that's sort of the, the high period of the Renaissance of the Abbasids, um, but also of a new Frankish king. So the, the, the Roman Empire had already recently collapsed, right? In around 450, it was the final death knell. The Vandals, the Goths took over, the Visigoths. And it had already broken up into an East and a West to just try to like kind of stay alive. Kind of like your body and going into hyperthermia, you know? And you got to pick like which organs are going to stay alive, <laughs> which which will be sacrificed. <laughs> so that was sort of like the, the Roman Empire body. And they they the Eastern one is a little bit more stable in that sense. The Western one was a corrupt basket case of Satanism. Uh, it didn't have the moral ability to sustain itself, even though you had people like St. Augustine who were, who were trying to reintroduce some creative moral vitality into it. It wasn't enough. Um, and so that had dismant that had disassembled itself. The, 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 as I said, the, uh, the Goths, the, the Visigoths, they basically created a confederation of, a, not even a confederation, a whole bunch of little mini, mini little micro empires where the Western empire used to be. So it was a state of chaos. Each person was like vying for power, constant little mini wars as, as it happens. And the Roman oligarchy, who's the key theme in the story, because the key, the, 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 the thing that connects this to today's present in terms of like, what is the continuity of evil? You got to see that it's the same, the, the same thing that controlled the mystery schools, the banks, the, uh, the ideological, uh, systems of the Roman Empire 
this yeah. evil rapacious empire of slavery exploitation and cult formation like we're talking <laughs> like really bad stuff here like baby sacrificing stuff was going on in, in some of these mystery schools of the roman mm-hmm. empire um these families that that manage that or the beneficiaries of that they um they migrated after rome collapsed the western roman empire collapsed to a new center of command which became venice venice was the sort of remobilized reorganized uh, roman empire yeah but it took a few hundred years for them to start really like reconstructing themselves <laughs> and in that period of chaos where they weren't they didn't establish themselves properly there was a lot of space that was given for for the Augustinian humanists, the the Augustinian forces in in uh, Europe, to move where they couldn't move prior. Mm. Um, so, despite that, the Venetians became a, a a system of corruption of funding. Like it was a center of bullion, silver uh, monopolies, international maritime trade for a few centuries, and even early on, they were still funding all sides to try to get maximum chaos to try to manage the chaos. Um, they're also working with the, anyway, that's a, I won't go into too many tangents if I can avoid it. But they were also had control over a lot of like the intelligence operations, right? The Venetians back then, right? Like I found that. That, that specialization started coming in more, they became more and more later. A little bit later. Yeah. After around the 10th century, 11th century, that's when they started really getting a handle on the mastery of their intelligence operations. They were still, they still had it though. Yeah. But it was, it wasn't as high level as it became. This was more in their transition from Rome declining and where were they going to end up? Okay. Right when they were getting resettled. Yeah. They resettled in Venice and then. But but then Charlemagne put a obviously he put a bit of a, a what do you say a, a, a wrench a, in it <laughs> yeah put a wrench in it you know big time big time because he was able to unify so the, yeah. he was like one of the one of the many there was like eight different local warlords um vying for control all fighting each other but the the Frankish uh, grouping which was where the Augustinian uh, forces concentrated themselves right. um had a much more viable moral and uh, basically wise plan and they were able to basically you know take control they 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 established for the first time a unified system they beat out all of the smaller warlords they established kind of like what had happened in china in the 200s after the warring states period you know you finally had a unifying uh, harmonizing principle under the han dynasty that's sort of what Charlemagne was and with that new sense of peace and stability you also had an unleashing of, of and this is Charlemagne's father um pepin the great Pep, no, they, no, actually, they call him Pepin the Small. It was, I guess, a, not the, the best subtitle, but <laughs> anyway, he was a really great guy. And, um, he unleashed a process of training orphans for the first time, not treating people like they're human cattle, but really wow. focusing on giving, like, provi- giving state backing to monasteries that were training little, like, children from low-level families, low-level in their, in the eyes of the, the elite, you know. Um, to become brilliant geniuses and, and do transcriptions of ancient manuscripts. Um, so it wasn't just literacy. It was really like synthesizing the best of human knowledge into this new generation that became the intelligentsia. Also internal improvements. The idea of, of now that there's no wars or big serious wars, you now have this ability to use your treasuries to invest in internal improvements, water systems, canals, roads, school, uh, schools, hospitals, things like that. So it was a really uh, glorious period in many ways under Charlemagne, especially this like came to an apogee. Um, and Charlemagne had a brilliant 
See, the, the, the modern historians tend to make the mistake of treating Charlemagne as a self-contained unit outside of a global context. Yeah. Or the Abbasid dynasty of his contemporary Harun al-Rashid, um, who was also the son of a great leader, um, as a self-contained thing. Or the Tang dynasty as a self-contained thing. And, exactly. and it's like, it's not right to do that. You can't understand any part yeah. unless you see the whole, right? But that's kind of their point, right? <laughs> <That's> <laughs> like they don't want people putting it together. But no. that you have to put it together in order to get the real story. Yeah, 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 exactly. <laughs> Context is everything. Uh, so, and definitely not Venice. Venice works re- has worked really hard at sponsoring researchers over the centuries to uh, mm. write them out of the equation. <laughs> so um, this gets into, I think, the the the, sec- the the most controversial thing I'm about to say. <laughs> is why do people not see the role of Venice? So even people looking at this process, um, oh, before I say the controversial thing, let me just say this. Um, the ecumenical alliance was incredible. So you had Charlemagne and Harun al-Rashid working on together. Uh, they, were, they were maintaining the, the Silk Road, this s- system of commerce and trade. Also, Chinese inventions were going, going west and inversion, inversely. Uh, insights and discoveries of the West were going east into China. So it was a really vibrant period of creative vitality, cross-pollinization of ideas. Um, and also with, with that comes also an, a, an ability to see the humanity in your neighbor, even if they have a different religion or language, right. which yeah. empires hate because that makes it harder for us to go to war or willingly accept a war with our neighbors, which is the technique of empire. So you had that happening. The, the, um, the houses of wisdom that you pointed out uh, are beautiful. These were like the platonic academies that uh, were sponsored by, uh, well, both both the Southern, because you had the Umayyad dynasty of, of Islam and you had the Abbasid dynasty. So there were two separate dynasties coexisting and vying for political supremacy, right? Over the Islamic world. The Umayyads were ousted from um, the Middle East, the heartland, uh, so-called, at a certain point by the Abbasids. And the Umayyads' new center of focus became southern Spain, or all of Spain. That's why the things like later on, the, 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 what some call the, the Muslim rena- or the Islamic Renaissance occurred in Spain, or one of the Renaissances occurred in Spain under the, uh, the, uh, I mean, the 11th, 12th century, when, when the rest of Europe was in like, was in a total dark age of medievalism and war. Um, they were going through this blossoming of science and discovery and medicine and everything, but wow. it was, it was already vibrant back then too. And these, these houses of wisdom at the time were centered in Baghdad under the Abbasids. And these, these were not specifically Muslim. You, you had, um, an open door policy inviting scholars from the Christian world, from the Jewish world. Um, Asians were involved, were invited in, Buddhists were invited in to all study astronomy together, study mathematics, geometry, poetry, which were all seen as different sides of the same thing. Not like today where all of these, you know, the, the arts and the sciences have been artificially schismed back then. They didn't have that problem so much. Um, and it was just a wonderful, um, pro- like, again, just super dense discoveries. And there were a lot of these houses of wisdom that were sponsored by the Abbasids all over the place. Wow. Uh, diplomatically speaking, to avoid the wars between Christian and, and Muslim worlds, which were already then the Venetians were trying to instigate. It took them a, a few centuries more to start to really get it off the ground with the, uh, the Crusades, again, sponsored by Venice. Yeah. They were trying earlier on, but not, not succeeding. Why? Well, one great example of that, 
there, there's this beautiful example that I, I cite in my, my, my new book, um, where Harun al-Rashid basically says, okay, to Charlemagne, instead of going to war over the Holy Land, how about this? He sends a giant delegation of gifts of gold, this big elephant from, uh, from, um, the, the Middle East into, uh, Charlemagne's, uh, kingdom as a gift. And with this giant gift comes a deed. And he says, okay, this deed is the Holy Land. Jerusalem, it's yours. We're giving it to you. You don't have to go to war. It's yours. And we will guard it. So we'll be the custodians guarding and protecting it. And it's yours. <laughs> and it worked really nicely. Brilliant idea. Yeah. Um, so you had this whole thing going on. Um, and keep in mind, again, the uh, the Muslims are also in uh, in China providing the defense of, of China's estate, providing the, the, the defense of the, the Silk Road corridors from bandits and other things. Um, very interesting stuff. So now you, you get us into um, the controversy. So why don't people look at the role of Venice as the continuity of the Roman Empire, which itself comes out of the Babylonian Empire, all the way up until the, the Venetians migrated a few centuries later after the Renaissance into taking over the British Isles? Um, and the Dutch area, the Netherlands, to the point that today this, this same, these same family groups, these, these same power structures using the same techniques with the same cult formations, the same banking operations, maybe a bit more complex, are today at the heart of this takeover of the USA since JFK was killed, as well as basically the whole Great Reset. If you look at all of this stuff, it's, it's really yeah. that. It's, it's trying to create a new Roman Empire. Yeah. Um, so why don't people understand this more clearly? Well, there's been a, a few... On the one hand, like I said, in some cases, many history books have just written them out of existence. So you don't even get to look at that. On the other hand, these same books tend to do what I just said. They, they myopicize. They get us to become very myopic and, and specialized in looking at one part of the world in time without a whole. The other thing, for those who do tend to look at a whole, to, you know, the, the call, call us the conspiracy theorists, right? People who think a little bit more critically outside the box about narratives. There's been special... Um, solutions special explanatory models of history provided for them too as fish that that jump out of the pond the controlled pond and into another controlled pond and that gives us now the issue of the evil kazarian mafia Uh, gotta go there (laughs) gotta go there yeah so i know you guys probably want to touch on that a little bit right yeah Yeah. (laughs) let's go there okay so the kazarian mafia is something that as far as I can tell, um, has been presented first. I think the first person to really showcase the this uh, Jewish kingdom that coexisted around the time of Charlemagne, Harun al-Rashid, the Tang Dynasty, the Silk Road. This Jewish kingdom that occupies much of today's um, Ukraine, some of uh, Russia around the Black Sea region, some of Central Europe below that. That's sort of the, the Khazarian kingdom geographical region. Uh, its borders are in Charlemagne's kingdom on one hand. It, it also bordered the Islamic world. Um, on the other hand, it was tied directly to the, the Chinese systems um, or the, the Chinese sphere of influence in, the, in its east. And it was a, a, a zone which was strategic in, the, in that early Silk Road Tang Dynasty revival. It was called the Steppes Silk Road. So you had several key transit points, mm-hmm. south, middle, and also a, a northern one through today's Russia that right. passed directly through Kazaria into Europe. Um, 
Now, the Kazarian Mafia thesis that was po- posited first by David Icke, um, is, and then it was taken up by a variety of other um, conspiracy researchers, says that this is the center of global evil. This is why you have Jewish bankers like the Rothschilds, the uh, the Goldsmiths, the the Montefiori, the Sassoons, and it's like, sure, like anybody like trying to piece together the lies of our current age will not take long before they encounter the fact that there are broader conspiracies. There are indeed a tendency to see, to, to uh, encounter Jewish dynastic mercenary families, or at least with Jewish names, um, doing bad things all across recent history for, for a few centuries here. Right. Um, the Rothschilds just being one of the more well-known of the coterie of these groups that they, they, they tend to wield a lot of financial wealth, um, Oftentimes they have uh, Zionist or they always they always have uh, a certain b- variety of political Zionism that they're that they're promoting, that they're they're advancing. Um, and, you know, it's tied to narcotics trades, it's tried, tied to usury, tied to all sorts of bad things. Then the question is, OK, why? So the question that's the big question. Why are there so such a, a consistent amount of Jewish family dynasties um, or at least with Jewish names? Um, that are conducting mercenary type operations to maintain empire for many generations. Why is that? Where did that come from? Now, the Kazarian Mafia thesis that was again posited by David Icke in the late '90s, and then it sort of grew, and now it's like really big in the in the conspiracy com- uh, community, is that this all came from Kazaria, this this zone that's kind of painted like um, if anybody has watched Lord of the Rings or read the books, um, Mordor, you know, the yeah. zone of orcs and orcai. Uh, that only is pure evil, right? <laughs> you don't need a reason why they're just evil. They're just evil. They want to, you know, kill babies and have slaves and, and they want to go to war and they just want to corrupt things. They, that's what they want to do. That's just all they know how to do. Genetically, it's like embedded in them. Um, and I found um, in wrestling through a lot of the literature on Kazarian Mafia uh, thesis that it's very unsatisfying. Like I, I, I see a lot of broad statements and claims that are made characterizing these orcs and evil uh, demonic uh, forces of this Jewish Khazarian kingdom. And it was, a, it's an anomaly. Like why did this, this kingdom, it was a Turkic kingdom. They converted um, under King Bulan, um, as the story goes to Judaism, as, as at least the official court uh, religion. It's not like everybody had to be Jewish, but that was like the official court religion. Um, of the, the immediate aristocracy. Um, why? Why did they do that? W- what was the story? What, what was the geopolitical environment in which it occurred? Because the, these guys will say, okay, it was just evil. And, and after that, the Khazarians, they tried to erase, scrub data of their existence after the 10th century. Then they became the Rothschilds. Then uh, they took over uh, Venice. Then they took over England. Then they took over everything. And they're just everywhere because they want to, and you can like, impose a a motive onto that if you want you know they just want to destroy the goyim um they, they're the chosen people they want to destroy the goyim they say you know and that that's it that's their motive the total domination because that's so but in looking at the proofs i'm i'm like i'm, I'm a researcher i'm looking for like where's your evidence you're going to make a generalization you're going to make a, a judgment call back it up and i very rarely found that satisfying like okay well where's your citation where's your Where's your evidence to back up this statement or that statement? So it's a lot of generalizations, kind of like office gossip, um, that paints over the existence 
of the Venetian Empire. It doesn't even exist in that world. The continuity of the Venetian of the Roman families into Venice and into that's not even there. It's it's like if anything, these are victims of this evil Jewish thing. And uh, and so you know, I started looking into it a little bit more scru- uh, with a scrutinizing eye. And um, the the research of a, of one particular figure was very helpful to me, named Pierre Baudry, who is also the the co-author or the author of the first book in my Canadian history series. Mm-hmm. Um, he did a lot of work on this, and I used a lot of the research, a lot of the leads, a lot of the books that he was pointing out um, to just look at the evidence. Whatever whatever is available, I tried looking at, and I found a very different picture. So when you actually start looking at what were contemporaries who lived in the time of Khazaria and Charlemagne, there were there were people who lived there and wrote, who spoke about this kingdom. What were they saying about it? What what, what were the geopolitical environments and fights that were going on, right? Well, and does this mafia thesis conform with that or, or does it disrupt that? It disrupts the, the Khazarian mafia thesis because what you have um, is something, okay, well, here's the thing. It wasn't purely a, 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 mono, a monolithic Jewish thing. There was a this this uh, um, Turkic um, grouping, this Turkic kingdom that that settled in that region. Um, all scholars agree that looking at the remnants of their of whatever literature and and you know um, secondary um, evidence is that it was a very Confucian. They had a Confucian uh, principle embedded in their worldview even before they they converted. Um, very much based on the mandate of heaven. That that idea was like central in that Turkic uh, philosophical worldview. Um, they also, once they did choose at a certain point to convert, and keep in mind, there's always efforts to get religious wars going at that time. Um, when they did choose to convert, they had a very ecumenical thing going there too, where they didn't they chose not to have a Jewish military of Khazaria around seven. This is around 750, 760 uh, AD. What they did is they had an agreement with the Abbasid dynasty who supplied a 12 or 13,000 man army to live in Khazaria as a sitting Muslim army that would then defend Khazaria under the condition that any war or any, any attacker that came on and attacked Khazaria, the the Muslims would then defend Mm -hmm. except if Khazaria by any reason in the future would ever declare war in the Muslim world. At that point they would attack Khazaria. So it was a really brilliant strategic Ooh. safeguard just imagine the state of israel today having an agreement with the the arab world to say okay let's <laughs> you'll be our army you protect us unless yeah. we go to war with one of your countries then you could attack us like that's a quite the interesting creative solution right. to a lot of problems um judicious judicially it's also interesting that um like the supreme court kind of like the areopagus of uh of kazaria which dis- discerned all all uh laws the application of laws was not a Jewish uh, monolith either. It was two Jews would be the judges, two Christians, two Muslims, and one um, Greek, one one pagan from the, because, uh, you know, paganism of the, of the Greek time was still very active. Um, that would be the configuration of the Supreme Court. On top of that, <laughs> there were these interesting anomalies too, where, where like Charlemagne, had an agreement where I believe it was one of his daughters. He agreed to marry as a Christian, Christian Augustinian kingdom, right? Agreed. There was a, a Jewish kingdom in the south of Charlemagne's Carolingian Empire called Narbonne in today's southern France. Narbonne. And uh, he basically made this a Jewish kingdom with a Jewish king and uh, a Christian wife of his one of his daughters. And he got one of the. Uh, he basically had an agreement that this. Um, it was, it was a diplomatic agreement reached between 
diplomats from the from Kazaria, from uh, from Harun al Rashid, because there was a vibrant Jewish community still in Baghdad um, that had the the lineage of David um, as well um, maintained, mm-hmm. as the story goes. And anyhow, one of the figures, one of the leading members of the of one of those families, uh, was brought in from Baghdad to settle in Narbonne to become the king of Narbonne, married to the uh, the daughter of Charlemagne, and they they established a really great again ecumenical type of diplomatic maneuver. Um, which was all premised on the idea that we're all human, first and foremost. We all have common interests together. And that, again, force of stability, the, this is all, I think one of the reasons why this has been so scrubbed from our history is because it disproves so concretely such theses like that of Samuel P. Huntington or Bernard Lewis, who are at the heart of today's um new world order ideology of a clash of civilizations that human beings mm. are not able to maintain peace ourselves. We need, cause we will always, if you let human beings be themselves, they will always go to war. We are told Christians will always fight. Muslims will always fight. Confucians will always fight. Buddhists will always fight. Hindus will always fight everything, you know, in a world of each against all to the death, unless the solution becomes, if you think that way, the only solution to peace, if we want to still believe in peace is a Leviathan, above the system to impose and maintain order from the top. And this is essentially the old Roman empire's idea of, you know, having um, one, one unipolar uh, ring to rule them all. So called, you know? Uh, So this proves that that's, that actually is not true. And in fact, when you let human, it's like babies, you know, like, like look at children, when you put them in a daycare together, they don't care about skin color or anything like that. They'll just play together. That's, that's human beings. And so it's the same thing when you have mature human beings who are given access to their full emotional development and empathy properly with their reason, their ability to recognize evil. Like Jesus said, you know, like <laughs> you should, you should strive to be as, as like uh, wise as serpents and soft as doves. <laughs> that's, that's master. That's masterful. Like, yeah, you have to yeah. always be, have that childlike innocence to be soft and loving, but at the same time, don't be intellectually stupid about evil evil exists it's it's sophisticated and it's bloodthirsty (laughs) and you don't want to just like trust everybody equally you know you want to look for the good in everything and but that's the thing we will tend to organize in harmony with each other um and 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 avoid the trappings of empire or wars yeah Um, we say we say that we got to be cosmic intelligence assets (laughs) like that yeah that's exactly it yeah the instruments of, of yeah God, and yeah, that that's totally. And, so, and that when when yeah. when he when Charlemagne set up that Jewish guy, uh, the Jewish king in Narbonne, which yeah. I do believe, if I recall, was like a port town as well. Yeah. So obviously, that's an interesting move when you think about it, because the Venetians aren't too far away from um as they did that. So obviously, they knew that he set up that Jewish guy over there. Right. They should, yeah, most you know. certainly. Yeah, they wanted like there was a vine for economic uh, control over commerce. Right. And the Venetians exactly. always had their their uh, they were always drooling over controlling that as one of the key nodes of maritime commerce at the time. Right. So, yeah, that was a big fight. Um, This thing endured for about a century of of vibrant creative development and, and things started going awry, I would say. Charlemagne's son continued the good policy as much as he could. His his grandsons, though, um, were more of a disaster, and they were more bigoted, or at least more more into their own little mini self interest. They lost the spirit of their father, father and grandfather, 
and they fell into a trap uh, that was organized in, by a lot of Venetian backdoor diplomacy, which had also had a lot of penetration into the Catholic Church um, of, of the Vatican at the t- or the, of, of Rome at the time, um, which, you know, just like everything, there's a deep state everywhere. There's fifth columns everywhere. And you'll find examples of good humanists who love humankind in positions of power at various times within the Vatican, within Rome. And at other times, you'll find the, the satanic parasite masquerading as a, a pseudo-Christian cult, but actually up to no good, subverting the good uh, from within. You'll find that everywhere. Yeah. So this was something which, due to some backdoor diplomacy, um, the kids were induced to carve up their father's kingdom. That was the only time Europe was ever unified as one giant force after the Roman Empire. And after that, one kid took the East. There was something called the Oath of Strasbourg. And, you know, one one grandson basically carved up the, the eastern zone. Another grandson carved up the middle called Lotharingia. Uh, that was, his name was Lothar. And the, there was a, another kid whose name I'm forgetting on the, on the, on the west of Europe who carved that up into sort of three factions. And then there was a smaller fourth faction. And, uh, two of the grandsons were induced to sign the Oath of Strasbourg in around 1890 or so. Uh, sorry, not 18, 890 or so. Um, might, might, or might have been a bit earlier. Which basically had the two kids on the on either side agree to gang up on the kid in the middle on Lotharingia and have like this. this these are the types of military alliances that are that are self destructive. They always said that, that that's what got us into World War One. That's what got us. In, that's what's getting us into World War Three. It's you know, <laughs> like we we'll we'll all no matter what whether a war that ever should come in the future is just or unjust, we'll back you up anyway. Yeah. Collective security, uh, you know, acting in NATO. That's the thing. Uh, so that's what ended up happening. And, uh, and anybody who wants to know like how these different cultural divisions in, in even borders of Europe were formed, like why is Germany or France, why do they have the borders today that they do? Yeah. Uh, or Spain, well, Spain is more obvious, but any of the countries of Europe, like why? You, you can't understand that if you don't look at the, the breakup of Charlemagne's kingdom back then, that it then began to induce, uh, religious wars like the creation of the Holy Roman Empire, uh, came out of that. There was one attempt to try to unify it once more in the 10th century, but that didn't really work out in a sustained way. Um, I think it was uh, King Otto uh, the first who was trying to revive that Charlemagne unifying principle, but that was subverted. And then coming out of that, um, everything kind of started really falling apart. The Silk Road fell into disarray um, around the 9th century. This is when the Song Dynasty, the Tang Dynasty collapsed. Luckily, you had some wise leaders who were able to revive the best elements culturally, at least, of uh, of the Tang Dynasty of Confucianism. And that became the, the early Song Dynasty. And then you had the late Song Dynasty. And that was overall a, a still a period of, of rich, vibrant, vibrant, creative discoveries and, and artistic advances. But it, but the Silk Road had, had disappeared by the, for the most part, or at least it, it had been dismantled by a factor of 90% or more. Because... Um, the Muslim world went into more disarray. The Christian world went into disarray. The world around, we don't fully know the story of what happened to Kazaria, but by that time it was getting carved up and, and going to hell fast. Um, there were laws that were passed by 18, uh, by, I would say 18, by around 980. Mm-hmm. Um, strange laws that began to be passed, all targeting um, the Jews. So like oh, it became right. illegal in Venice to do business with any ship that had a Jew on it. Uh, Jews were forbidden from being uh, members of guilds or trade schools or having any trade beyond simply being sellers of, uh, they were allowed to be uh, sellers of used cloth 
in Venice or they were allowed to do accounting and banking. That was the two yeah. points which, where you were allowed. Which I found so interesting when I, I don't remember was one of your lectures where you said that. And I was like, well, that's where it started. Like the stereotype of yeah. like Jews only being in banking in this. It's like all the way back to Venetian times where they were forced into only certain positions. Like, yeah, and it was replicated in Germany. It was replicated in, in England the same policy of forbidding Jews from having access to various crafts, no farming, they couldn't be soldiers, they weren't allowed to carry a weapon, they, they couldn't do anything. And it was a real cultural apartheid imposed. And the Jewish kingdom of, of Khazaria, like I said, it was really dismantled. And, and to the point that I've never seen such a con, cons, like a, an obsessive amount of erasing of, of burning of literature, uh, there's hardly much left that, that a lot of scholars can work with. You, you have, like I said, some Muslim historians and geographers who spoke very well of this kingdom. Um, they, they did happen to have, apparently, and I think this is probably true, there, there was the practice of, uh, of uh, uh, the slave markets. That was something that was there. And I think that Kazaria possibly was involved in that. But I think, and that's one of the reasons that people will say, oh, look, it's this evil, you know, Mordor society, they were doing slavery. Yeah. And it's like, yeah, but look at the age that they lived in. Like the Muslim world was doing like the slave markets, like right. the Christian world had slave markets. It's not like anybody didn't have, like that was a big part of the world. It's like today, you know, criticizing, you know, one country for using slave labor, cheap labor for dollaramas. And it's like, or, you know, like, okay, but did they make the policy? Like, I, I don't like using slave labor for my dollaramas, but like, is everybody equally complicit or where did this come from? You know? Yeah. Right. Um, all that to say, there was a consistent destruction. Only today, recently, there was a, a, a some scrolls that were discovered in Egypt. Um, forgetting the name, um, thousands and thousands, a whole attic in this old, ancient, yeah. fourteen thousand year old monastery um, in Egypt that has been uncovered. The, the g- 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 oh man, I hate forgetting. <laughs> anyway, uh, it'll come later. But but there there are references to um, Kazaria that have survived that that are being now fleshed out and looked through and, and it's very interesting, um, positive things you know. But overall, it's been scrubbed. And so coming out of that, the Venetians that were at this point, what were they doing? First Crusade had been had been orchestrated and, and bankrolled um, in the early 11th century against the Christian versus Muslim world. There were four of these major crusades that that turned the Christian world into a basket case uh, of just like economics became about like, what do you steal? <laughs> Not about what you create anymore. And uh, and it, the, the inter-civilizational disharmony really got amplified. And one of the things that Venice was, it was a bit of a, a evil genius coup d'etat against the Ottomans, because keep in mind, uh, not the Ottomans, sorry, against the, the Eastern Orthodox Church which at that time was like the last bastion of the, the Roman Empire was still the East in Constantinople. And they had largely, Constantinople had dominant sea control, especially with commerce into Asia and, and sea control over much of the Mediterranean. Um, it, Venice wanted that power. They were still located in the sort of armpit of, of right. Italy, you know, the, this, right. <laughs> and, yeah. uh, and they wanted all of those uh, maritime zones. Prelude. And so how do they get them? They did get them. How did they get them? So they got them through the Fourth Crusade. And the Fourth Crusade, you know, people people look at uh, Venice today and they're a little surprised by the architecture and the art the art in St. Mark's Square and, and other things. And you're like, this is very 
Byzantine artwork everywhere in Venice. Like, where did this artwork come from? And basically, it goes back to the Fourth Crusade, where they got a bunch of idiotic Christian mercenaries to go to war, but they didn't have enough money. Everybody was indebted to Venice. And so they didn't have the means to get their like 20,000 or whatever it was, troops, their soldiers into the boats, into into the Holy Land to go and fight the Ottomans and the, and the, the, the pagan or not the pagan, but the the infidels, the Muslim infidels. So how do they do it or how, how do they get the money? Well, Venice basically had a great idea. They said, well, OK, you, you got to pay us the money you owe us to use our boats because we control all the boats at this point in that area you need to use. So uh, why don't you just go and uh, fight this little uh, kingdom here oh, in uh, Constant- Constantinople. Just so wicked. Just go sack Constantinople. <laughs> take their money. They, they're bad. Just go people. sack that over there. <laughs> yeah, trust us. They're bad. <laughs> and uh, sure enough, these Christian uh, soldiers stupidly went and declared war. They besieged and, and destroyed Constantinople, killed tens of thousands of Christians. So it's Christians killing Christians. They sacked it, stole everything, burnt <laughs> chunks of the big chunks of the library that had the ancient manuscripts, um, and sent uh, the bounty to Venice. Much of it went to Venice, and uh, they got the money that then was used to pay for the boats. But instead of paying for the boats, they were like carrying so much, so many, so much loot and booty that they were like, well, let's just go home. So they, they never even made it to the the, the Holy Land. <laughs> they they just like went back home <laughs> with their money and gave Venice like fifty percent. Um, <laughs> And Venice, coming out of that, got control of all of the of the Byzantine uh, shipping oh, lanes. They basically, within one year, took control of all of that. So now this little messed up city state, which was called the Serene Republic, the, <laughs> you know, that was what Venice called itself, was a republic. And it wasn't a republic; it was a it was a total <laughs> oligarchy. And uh, Shakespeare just destroyed him. Renders this thing transparent in his plays in Othello and The Merchant of Venice. And, uh, yeah, this is a thing that was run by a doge just to get a sense of how insane this self-controlling structure worked. You had sort of the, the doge at the top, right. who is somebody from one of the accepted families. You had a committee of three controlling the doge and the committee of three controlled also all of this, this, it was a, it was a police state. So everybody was paid money to, uh, tell on their neighbors if there was anything suspicious. So obviously you had a lot of people making money delivering even false intel to the city lions. So you had these like, um, these monuments with these lion, um, these lion faces with their yeah. mouths open that anybody could drop like accusations into, and it would be dealt with by the committee of three. So they had the, they were, they had like full control of the secret police. I mean, and something like one person in 20 was a member of the secret police of Venice. Nice. Um, everyone was, was self-censoring, afraid that they would be overheard saying the wrong thing or criticizing the wrong person. Um, the, the poverty level was huge. And it was also a festival level, like the Carnival, you know, the, the Venetian masks that people, uh, you, you see it, you know, being used in things like Eyes Wide Shut with yeah. the, you know, the right. last Stanley Kubrick movie. Right. That, that's a take on the Venetian Carnival system of orgies. Right. You know, people would just hide their identities and just, you know, get off on each other for uh, on a regular basis. It was part of just the culture. Very hedonistic. And hey, below- actually, actually, your your wife, Cynthia, she did that brilliant lecture on the Bravo in this oh, period. Yeah. And man, when you read that novel, The Bravo, I mean, it's so dark when they go into where the Doge is and where these guys hang out. Like, I mean, cinematically, if you would, if you would portray it, man, it would just be so dark. You'd have to find like other ways to lighten up the movie, you know? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. I don't know how that would work. She just killed it when she did that. You know, we'll we'll put it out there, everybody. Go back and watch that (laughs) lecture by Cynthia because. 
you know, Matt's doing a wonderful job giving us the overview, but she'd spend two hours just destroying it. Yeah, you know? she laid it out. Yeah. If, yeah, if you guys could put the, the link, I'll say, yeah, the link to her, her class. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, so Matt, I, I'm really curious though, before you move forward, that yeah. whatever happened to the Jewish king that Charlemagne set up, which was right in that zone. Like, what did they do with Narbonne in that area? When when did the Venetians take that over, or did they, or what happened? That's a question I still have to answer. I, I don't fully uh-huh. have the, the story on that. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure we can get that pretty easily, though. It's just not yeah. something I had the time to really delve into, but I'm sure we can get that that story relatively easily. Yeah. I don't know. Um, I'm just curious, yeah. Yeah, I don't know. But um, but definitely, hey, hey, was, hey, we could move forward to manifest destiny. I mean, we're having such a fun well, time. I, like, we can, okay, let's let's migrate there, but let's do yeah, it. Yeah, there in, you in go. A, you you, you try to transition in a, in a in a lawful way. Yeah, so go the, for um, it. The thing became here this this parasitical hive. Then basically found itself at its center center of command was Venice. It's um, it one of the problems in the Christian faith for these uh these uh, I would call them satanic bloodlines and satanic uh cult uh pre you know priests of this 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 weird thing um was that in the christian faith is not very favorable to the utilization of usury just like the muslim world is not is it's more it's more extremely visceral in the in the quran but it's also there in the bible like usury is not acceptable um so the problem was how do you maintain the the aura or the image of being christian while at the same time needing to do usury as a part of the necessary tool basket of an of an empire uh committing economic warfare against its enemies so this is where the phenomenon of the 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 hof hof juden the 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 court banker comes in as a as a new a new variable in the in the great game so a lot of these early um these early uh, Jewish families, like the, in in the Jewish faith, there, there's nowhere explicitly stated in the Talmud or the Quran or the the, the Torah or the whole, the the Jewish Bible um, that you cannot do the usury. So okay, they would then utilize these court or these various selected um, Jewish families as um, mercenaries, economic hitmen to carry out dirty work, but always on behalf of a higher master race, a higher master class above them. And because they were doing the dirty work and, and the, the more sociopathic, the ones who were the best at doing what they were assigned to do were granted family privileges. So their kids were promised and their grandkids were promised a certain little mini dynasty uh, license or something, you know, to be protected, to have a, you know, certain privileges granted as long as they keep up and maintain the family tradition. So to the degree that they do that guaranteed. And so uh, a, another form of like bad cultural dynamic was sort of uh, set into motion inside of the Jewish cultural matrix um, that undermined a lot of the better humanistic um, traditions that were also very vibrant and good in, in the Jewish cultural matrix. So, you know, the more you reward over generations, a certain yeah. type of bad behavior, and the more you punish good behavior, you make it impossible for people to have trades or any type of, you know, actual meaningful work and participation in a community yeah you're gonna bring out the worst in people and so the jews started getting a bad rap um and this is where shakespeare shakespeare's polemicizing against this which the character of shylock in the merchant of venice um now shakespeare is often accused of being uh, an anti-semitic or you know an anti-jewish uh, guy did now did, did he believe the christian faith to be superior yeah he believed that that's why he has 
uh, Sherlock being forced to convert uh, at the end, you know, against his will to Christianity. Now, at the same time, did he believe that all Jew- Jewish, was he anti-Jewish? No, because Shylock wasn't the only Jew in the play. He had other, he had, Shylock had a daughter, he had a, he had a friend. Now, the daughter also did convert on her will. She was horrified by her father's uh, evil, but his friend never converted. His friend was horrified as a Jew who was horrified by the immorality of Shylock, who wanted a pound of flesh from, you know, the, the merchant uh, who got indebted um, and was being expected to honor a debt even at the price of death. And it's like, can you measure money? And, and life on the same scales, that was the test, right? right. Um, and that's the whole lesson of the play. Yeah. Uh, so he, the, the other Jewish uh, associate of, of Shylock is horrified at this guy's disgusting immorality. And so the point that Shakespeare is getting at is not that Jews are like Shylock, it's that Shylock is a bad person. <laughs> that's his problem. <laughs> and he happens to be a Jew. And there's a cultural problem there in terms of the, the utilization of Jewish bankers and how they're obsessed with, with usury and, and debt over and, and contractual uh, law over uh, human law, like natural law. That, that was a, a, a blurry problem uh, for a lot of people. But it wasn't the Jewish thing that was the, that was the cause of that. So anyway, that, this is where things like the, you know, the Montefiore family ends up becoming one of the early, uh, you know, dynastic mercenaries. Uh, later on, the Rothschilds are brought in in the mid to late 18th century, right. a little before the American Revolution, as kind of a coin dealer, Amschel Rothschild, who had some skill and some sociopathy and, and you know, was thus granted more more rights and privilege. Um, so there's a lot of these things that were brought in. Now, people, again, would will tend to look at the past through the filter of their present biases. And they're like, okay, the, the Rothschilds are this super powerful family. Thus they look at the past from the vantage point that they've always been. And yeah. they can't see that there's a glass ceiling that even the Rothschilds and all of these other coterie mercenary bankers are not allowed to marry up into. They're not allowed right. to pollute higher bloodlines. Right. Uh, and that's provable. That's actually a demonstrable thing. That's so they're, they're kept and used as a hate uh, the way I think of it is like a, a, a what do you call it? Um, a, a well of hate, a, a hate absorber. That's it. So obviously, when you're doing the dirty work, people will obviously hate who's hurting them. Right. It will be harder to see who's controlling their yeah. Uh, their <laughs> so it's useful to have these characters like George yeah. Soros, right. um, <laughs> or you know, like name name a, a bad guy who people tend to hate today who does a lot of bad, and they forget that there's this higher function. Right. So that's that's one thing to keep in mind. Um, the other thing, and this gets us into this manifest destiny thing. So, okay, the the period when Venice had to move, this is how we'll all work it in. The yeah. period that Venice had to migrate from Venice, or the, the the oligarchy had to migrate their their functions geopolitically from Venice in the armpit of of Italy to a new location more strategic uh, to their interests, which became. First, the Amsterdam area, and then the very quickly thereafter, it became the British Isles on the island. Okay. Um, this was the, their wake up call. Was I'm going to talk about this in my class, so it's good practice here for me. I'm going to do this on Sunday. Nice. Uh, was um, something called the League of Cambrai of 1508 that was organized, where all of the different um, leaders of Europe representing different localized interests you know the french were fighting the english for hundreds of years and the, the hundred years of war then the english were fighting themselves in the, the war of the roses and then you know you had the holy roman empire which was this hyper divided uh, empire of baronials and, and princelings under the control of the holy roman emperor 
who himself was beholden to the Vatican. And then you had, you know, the Habsburg and, and the, 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 the Spanish Empire. And everybody was fighting each other. Constant divide to conquer. All being funded by, by Venice, the Venetian bankers that had, again, control of the bullion, control of everything. Also, you know, intelligence, as they controlled the shipping, they also controlled the, the postal services. So any type of international communications passed through Venice. So a lot of you know, forgeries, a lot of reading people's intel. And that's how they had this great... Uh, high capacity for profiling and, and providing intel at a very quick yeah. speed around almost real time, which is a miracle for the age before electricity, right? Yeah. yeah. Uh, Amazing. The, also, they had they, they had the the monopoly of trade into um, Mongolia, like under the under the Khans, Genghis Khan, the one Western uh, Western power that was allowed to operate freely in trade in all of uh, Genghis Khan and his heirs yeah. all uh, territories that were being taken over under this new global cognate um was venice why why did they why did they do that to venice was it possible that venice was providing these 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 you know uh barbaric groups i know we were were just told that they were just you know barbarians and mongols and like this like how did they you know it's just it's so infiltrated and everything (laughs) yeah exactly like marco polo and his dad were like the advisors to kublai khan you know (laughs) like that's Marco Polo is not just this objective explorer <laughs> wanting to like check out Asia. No, he had like political assignments. He was advising the cons. And what was he advising them on? What, what intel was he providing them in terms of the weaknesses of the courts of that con was it was that he was getting into to, that he was destroying one after the other? Um, yeah. So you had this whole thing, right? It wasn't just a European phenomena. And uh, so back to the story, League of Cambrai. This this was a moment where the various leaders of um, the humanist faction, I would say they were all Augustinian, the Augustinian current within Christianity, which was like the platonic uh, current that had probably the greatest epistemological handle on things, um, were able to orchestrate a series of diplomatic exchanges where these different kingdoms were induced to finally talk with each other for once. Mm-hmm. And realize, like, why are we all fighting each other when the same people are are the Venetians who are benefiting off of all of our wars? Why don't we just actually, like, just destroy Venice <laughs> and start working together? And they did. And so that, that League of Cambrai, which, I mean, one of the key architects of it was Machiavelli, who worked very closely with uh, Leonardo da Vinci in the defense of Florence. Uh, Machiavelli is often given a bad rap uh, for being a Machiavelli. That's why the, the word Machiavellian is not usually a, a compliment. It's not usually positive. <laughs> oh. But Machiavelli was into real politics too. And he was, he never wanted, first of all, his, his prince, uh, which is what he's probably the most well known for to ever be published for public consumption. He made that very specific yeah. to a, a, a one specific prince in Florence and Milan, uh, that needed to understand the nature of evil in the real world, um, while you're at war. And there were, you know, satanic, he's a, <laughs> a realist in that sense. But he was also like, when you read his, uh, his, uh, books on Livy, um he's that's lesser known but like these are the things he wanted to be his posterity this is where you get a sense of the sublime loving uh divine character that was in his heart and this is you know da vinci was a very close ally and caesar borgia who was a big uh backer of a lot of this um so it was basically league of cambrai involved uh the vatican um Pope Julius II, who was a corrupt pope who screws things up later on, he ends up becoming a, a, a you know, a, a key part of organizing the, the, the Holy Roman Empire to be, to join. Um, France is the key figure or the key area that was behind this along with Florence and Milan. 
everybody joins and they destroy the Venetian uh, uh, mercantile fleet. The whole thing is is wiped off the map. And just as they're about to go in for their, their second thrust, like Machiavelli writes, like Venice just lost in one day what it took them 800 years to gain. Everybody was celebrating that finally a new age of harmony and peace with a, a, a post-oligarchical era was upon us. And uh, the Venetians were able to pull some very nasty, brilliantly evil maneuvers that and got wait, involved. What, what, time, what time period are we in? Sorry. Just... 509 now. Okay. Uh, sorry, 1509. 1509. 1509. I was like, okay. 1509. Yeah, sorry. 1509. Uh, so the first onslaught was the early part of 1509. Whole Venetian fleets were, were wiped out. Just before the second uh, uh, axe could come down on Venice, that's where all of a sudden there's – this is weird. <laughs> all of a sudden, Pope Julius pulls himself and the, the Holy Roman Empire uh, of what's Germany today out of the alliance. Not only do they pull it out, he accepts a bribe by Venice, and, and Venice basically agrees uh-huh. to pay um, so, like something like two or three times more than market value for all of the – the, the the alum uh, properties that the that Vene- uh, that the the Vatican has control of, uh, alum is a very high value commodity yeah. back in those days, uh, for glass and other things, um, and a few other things. They also agree to give the Vatican a whole bunch of properties that they had control over, um, and so that that bribe works. Julius II does what he does, and uh, and all of a sudden they create a new alliance that soon involves Henry VIII. Join it very very soon thereafter. Everybody is now working with Venice. So the new mm. alliance is everybody with Venice as Honest Diago is our new Venetian Honest Honest Venice, <laughs> and the and everybody goes to war with France, Florence, and Milan, uh. especially. And, and France and Florence are all of a sudden left like <laughs> all of their, like, their, their their allies are attacking them. They're like, "What are you doing?" <laughs> um, and so and they battle it out. Uh, da Vinci avoids assassination by uh, first escaping to Rome and then going to France under King Louis the the Twelfth, who provides him uh, security where he lives out the rest of his days. Um, m- m- um, Machiavelli and Caesar Borgia's uh, citizen army that was one of the keys to their success in the battles against Venice was having this cit- not not mercenaries but really like trained citizen soldiers. Uh, that's wiped out. They, they're all massacred. Um, so that undermines this entire like new model of of military uh, strategy, and so Venice survives to to be evil another day. Now the thing though is it's a wake up call for the Venetian grand strategists because they realize that they're a lot weaker than they thought they were, mm. and they're more vulnerable. Mm. So they're they're trying to figure out well, how do we how do we how do we get to a more secure strategic location? And this is where the, yeah. there's this big discussion in the, yeah, the yeah. highest echelon. Cynthia actually did another great class on this, um, on uh, the Ghost Seer by Schiller, a couple of years yeah. ago. It's a really good yeah. lesson where she goes through this in, in more depth. Um, but essentially, they they focus on then moving their operations to uh, smother a phenomenon that had had been had awoken in the 15th century Golden Renaissance. So Florence was the center of a new, uh, they basically just begin begun rediscovering the ancient ideas of Plato, of the ancient sciences of Thales and others. Of pa- the Pythagorean method was was making a comeback, but it was being deployed in a economic uh, program, which was in many ways unleashed by by Dante Alighieri, centered around the um, the construction of of a project in Florence. That started in around 1260, 1270, 
but it took a while for this project to really start to complete itself. And it was the uh, the Santa Maria del Fiore Cathedral, this gigantic dome. Wow. And it was the, the, basically a a multi-generational, like, kind of like a pyramid building project. It took about 200 years for this thing to be finished. And it involved doing things, making discoveries of impossibilities. It, it, to this very day, it's the largest stone dome in existence. Nothing has been able, we haven't been able to replicate how they did that even today with all our technology. We can't figure it out. Wow. Now, this was done because it was understood that you have to give people an impossible challenge to give the, to awaken the yeah. best of what's inside yeah. of them, right? Yeah. You can't do what already exists. And so it, the person to really make the discovery of how to solve the problem of the dome was Filippo Brunelleschi and, or Brunelleschi. And, uh, and he put into motion a design which worked. Um, and it, you, it disobeyed all of the naive mathematical formulas of the day that didn't work. Every time you just tried to build a dome using a half circle or even an oval, it would fall in on itself before you could get very high. Um, he was able to get across the solution um, in ways that I, I fully haven't been able to wrap my mind around. I don't think anybody really has fully answered it. Um, but it, it used certain understandings of physical geometries. Um, and and it, anyway, it, yeah, there's a whole, that's a whole class, which in fact, now that I'm talking about it, back in 2016, <laughs> Cynthia Chung gave a class on this in 2016 that I totally forgot about. Um, yeah, brilliant stuff. Anyway, so this became of a new cultural basis of, around which Da Vinci was trained. So Da Vinci was, was brought into um, the, 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 the mission project, this, this science driver project that was creating new inventions, new machinery, uh, things that were thousands of new designs were coming online, um, that he was participating in. That was like a, an educational process with, with hundreds of thousands of people over the generations processed through that. And then who went back with new skills into their different parts of Italy. That, this is the heart of the, the golden Renaissance. And so just like we had earlier Renaissances, this was again, breakthroughs in medicine and astronomy and in statecraft and everything and the idea of the new the new idea that human beings are not just an, a creature of adaption that would adapt to our fixed conditions right. but rather we are a creature of creative leaps that we can always transcend our limits to growth by going outside of our limits within ourselves by also going outside of the objective limits in the world we live in and, and making new discoveries right that liberates right. us from the previous okay. constraints yeah that was a great, that was a wonderful idea that gave rise to the, a new school of economic science called cameralism, which also grew out of Italy and it quickly leapt into um, uh, France and Germany and England. People like Thomas More was an early uh, cameralist. Um, so was Erasmus. Um, More, who got his head cut off for trying to like stop the, the splintering up of the church even more, uh, you know, uh, when he, he didn't want to give consent to the idea that Henry VIII should be the basis or the, the head of a new church, uh, cause he wants to get laid. And, um, so cameralism was the idea that, okay, there's a relationship between the, um, the, it's kind of like the mandate of heaven, right? That, 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 a, that a king is only a just king when he's not a master of the people, but a servant of the people, that he's the, a servant of God's will and thus is like a father and a servant to be, uh, responsible for the growth of mature citizens who could become fully actualized as in terms of you know being made in the image of god which means you, you have to sponsor uh up, uplifting cultural uh, processes right you have to provide 
uh, orphans the means to read and you have to give people work like internal improvements. And also you have to go to beyond your limits in terms of uh, things like the new world were beginning to open up. Uh, it wasn't always like, you know, a lot of the, the critical race theory stuff of our current day has us treat everything in the past that were done by dead white European males as all equally bad. Yeah. And it's like, yeah, dead white European males did a lot of bad. But at the same time, uh, you'll find also dead white European males who did a lot of good. And it's it's mixed. So uh, I think Columbus is, is consciously given a bad rap as being like this evil exploiter baron of the uh, the natives of the Americas. And I, I, I think that that's wrong. When you actually look at the writings and the intentions explicitly stated by Columbus and look at his acts that he did in his four voyages, including when he was put in prison by his enemies back in Europe, uh, in Portugal, in the, on, after the fourth voyage, um, you could see that he represented something very positive. And it was this entire deep state oligarchic apparatus that undermined the idea of creating a new type of society in the new world based upon um, a respect for the divinity of all human beings, regardless of whether you're a Christian or not. Um, and th then, yeah, like massacres and destruction occurred in the wake of that um, Spanish imperial, Portuguese imperial uh, policy. We don't have to say more about that because every everyone knows about the horrors of that stuff. Sure. But all I have to say, it's mixed. Yeah. And, um, and this whole idea of the new world awoke new intellectual vistas this gets us at Manifest Destiny, right? Yeah. So where did this idea of American manifest or the positive element of American Manifest Destiny arise? It was from this period where there was a concept now that we're not just in this localized little part of the world where if you venture too far, you know, most of the masses believed you'd fall off the, the side of the, the world into an abyss. Um, and there was, you know, look at all the maps before the Renaissance of the oceans and you'll always find sea monsters other things that will kill you. So more reason to just stay on land, like a good little, weed, you know, or a good little shape sheep on your, on your plantation and know your role. That's, that was the ethic, know your role. Um, so in the new, the new ethic with this idea that there's this other civilization of human beings on the other side of the ocean in another land, uh, it opened up new possibilities. And a lot of the humanists around Moore, that's why Moore was writing the utopia when he did, it was to give, um, the other, the intelligentsia of Europe, as well as the people, an idea that, okay, he was both criticizing the absurdity and, and hypocrisy of, of his own, you know, oligarchical system. Like, you know, he, he has this character going in and criticizing, like, why are we in, you know, here in England, we're killing people with the death penalty uh, for stealing money as, as well as killing um, somebody, whether you kill or whether you steal, you still get the death penalty. That's a bit much, isn't it? Can you still can you weigh, again, a human life and money on the same scale of justice? And, you know, um, and he makes a point even that, uh, or that one of the characters in his platonic dialogue in the, in the utopia makes a point. Well, you know, if anything, this is actually just causing more murders because it's if the if the thief knows that uh, he's going <laughs> to die by getting caught either way, his chance of getting caught or less if he just kills the, his, the witness, right, that he's robbing. Whereas otherwise, you might have just let the witness live because <laughs> it's going to be death either way, right? Yeah. And, and he's like, but look at Utopia. They don't do it there. This is, and he's like talking about this character who just voyaged and lives with the Utopians in uh, South America for like five years. And he's like, and just going through this like, you know, imaginary world of justice. Uh, some of, He also throws in some absurdities as well to, to get people like critically thinking a little bit, you know, about like, oh, yeah, they, they don't even have property and all this uh, stuff. But it's, it's really a thought experiment, an exercise. Um, holding up one model that never existed and, and just now using that as, a, as an ability to contrast all of the the norms that are actually totally unnatural in the world yeah. you're living in. 
So you got this going on. The the entire humanist process ends up ultimately dying out, though, as the, the Venetian plague and parasite ends up taking control. The Rosicrucian order mm. is taken uh, increasing um, implants itself into the hierarchies of Europe, starting especially of, of England, starting with Henry VIII. Um, and then Robert the Flood and John Dee are these other intelligence agents who are really satanic, bringing in more violent forms of Rosicrucianism, uh, hyper mysticism that, that breaks up the mystical and, and the divine from the reasonable. Yeah, so basically yeah. these are people who are saying, um, cause like the great scientists are also men of men and women of faith as well. You know, I shouldn't say women cause at the time back then there weren't, women weren't given the opportunity to, to <laughs> activate that so much that came later, but, um, the idea was that, yeah, like we, God, we are, we are, we are, we have to have faith that guides our reason, but the Rosicrucian and these other Masonic, you know, mystery orders that also certain had a certain Kabbalistic twist at a certain point, this, which is effectively a, a Babylonian technique of, of inducing self-hypnotic trances using like random syllabic, blah, 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 you know, chanting and putting yourself into a, a chant with, with aromas and, and candles and, yeah, basically <laughs> ways of driving yourself, deconstructing yourself um, that all are part of this, this initiation, initiation process. The, these things were all coming out of Venice. That's where, Ven that's why Venice was also the, the key printing press area uh, for a long time. And they were publishing a lot of these mystical works. Um, so John D again, Robert Flood, others, they were trying to like uh, bring human beings into this idea of an irrational deity with an order that, that didn't care about our personal ability to influence it for better or for worse. So there's just this predestination idea and maybe you could read tea leaves. You could have like some sort of, you wow, know, that's but, started that. <laughs> yeah. And, and so um, there was this, this, this takeover of first again, England and England was fully taken over. I would say in my research, it really occurred around the time of the, the glorious revolution, they call it of 1688. Which saw, you know, a Dutch king implanted as a puppet king into uh, England from Amsterdam. But the Venetians had already taken over Amsterdam by that time. They created the Bank of, of, of Amsterdam in, in 1609 as the, the world's second sort of private central bank. The, the Bank of England later on, after the, the Glorious Revolution, became the second private central bank on that model of an independent bank that would control national monetary policy. Mm. Um, this is... It's self-modeled earlier on the Bank of Venice and the Levant Company. So even somebody like, uh, just to get a sense of this, um, Benjamin Disraeli, who was later on a prime minister of, of Britain for a period, he even wrote a book where he talks about how William uh, of Orange and um, George I, George II, George III, he oh, describes how these were all effectively doges. And how George III, he says, you know, didn't want to be a doge. He's the only one who tried to resist, but he couldn't escape his Venetian constitution. And uh, and and Disraeli is very candid. He like he's not against it necessarily, but he's candid about what it is. And he he, he talks about how it's the Venetian party of Lord uh, Marlborough, um, who is John Churchill, the the great 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 grandpa of of, of Winston. Um, who is the head of the Venetian party. And he's like the, the key mercenary of the, of, of the British empire who brings in this coup d'etat and, uh, and, and purges England of all of its, um, Augustinian, Erasmian, Thomas More currents who had been still people like Jonathan Swift, 
who was an advisor to the Prime Minister Robert Harley, another great man, um, who were trying to organize um, voyages to the New World to set up things like the Jamestown colony in 1605 as the first British colony. Ultimately, that went to hell. That was undermined and sabotaged. But the overarching desire was, again, to reawaken this policy of getting far enough away from the corruption and the rot that had so been deeply ingrained in, in the old world and, and get create a space, a cultural space where the good couldn't be subverted so easily. Right. And that's what even, you know, I think that uh, there's a good study I even read of uh, Shakespeare's The Tempest written around the same period in 1608 or 1609. Um, and, and Shakespeare's relationship to the same networks that were uh, Walter Raleigh was a part of the, the great explorer and voyager. Mm-hmm. who is the one pushing these these colonization projects in the Americas. So, you you know, you have this um, this rich potential to continue and reawaken the better uh, Renaissance traditions. It's ultimately subverted. Um, the Bank of England takes hold. You know, uh, Robert Harley, by six, after the death of Queen Anne, Robert Harley is, uh, is, is stuck in the, the Tower of London for several years by his enemies. Jonathan Swift, his advisor basically escapes assassination and, and goes to Ireland uh, where it's slightly safer uh, to try to fight another day. And, and all of these guys keep in mind here, they're all in, in constant correspondence later on, especially after the, the 16 here, we're talking here, the 16 thirties, uh, forties. They're the ones who are behind the early landing of the Mayflower, Mayflower colony. So people like uh, John Winthrop, um, the Mathers, the whole family they're constantly in dialogue with people like uh jonathan swift like uh godfrey leibniz the great scientist statesman who almost became prime minister prime minister under uh uh queen anne of uh of england um actually sophia who was supposed to be the heir to queen anne who was his student uh godfrey leibniz was a was a really really strong platonic like this guy was just on another level of brilliance like like a da vinci of his time Mm -hmm. and he again almost had his prodigy, his student, Sophia, who was an older woman, become the queen after Anne died. But Sophia died a little bit too soon by mysterious circumstances. Then Anne died. And then uh, a Hellfire Club inductee named uh, George I of Hanover becomes the king. And and he hates Leibniz, cuts off Leibniz from all of his funding. Um, He's, again, a Hellfire uh, prodigy. And uh, empowers things like the the South Sea bubble. So the, the whole... Anything good that was done by Harley and Swift in England, like the, the creation of a national land bank, which they tried to do to, to subvert or break away from the, uh, the Bank of England, they created a national land bank to fund internal works, internal improvements. That was part of the Camerillist project. That became then subverted and taken over um, to become a speculative – it became the South Sea Company. That, that's the famous South Sea bubble that exploded in a speculative collapse in 1720. That was the land bank originally. So it was undermined. Um, and every, uh, you know, Britain went through a huge economic turmoil at that point, but the, the Hellfire Club networks consolidated their power. So, um, in America, that, that's where you have this very interesting fight with, um, I've got a book here by a really great scholar, uh, here, I only get it. Ah, ah it's a great book called, uh, How the Nation Was Won by, uh, Graham Lowry. Um, America's Untold Story from 1630 to 1759. Okay. Um, it was volume one of two. Unfortunately, the author died before he could finish volume two, so we only get volume oh. one. 
but it's a really great story going through everything I've just said in such thorough detail. And it's, it reads like a drama, like it would make a wonderful documentary or movie. Um, but nice. these are the groups that were, were organizing to create like, like, uh, John Winthrop stated when he founded the Massachusetts Bay Colony was a city on a hill, a new type of, of, uh, order was being created, founded upon the idea of all men being created equal, made in the eyes of, of God and, and in the image of God and par- capable, key, capable thus, and even mandated to participate in the unfolding of creation. So yeah. God isn't seen in that, in that paradigm as this tyrannical overlord, you know, overbearing on you, expecting you to, to, uh, be good, well behaved. Right. So that, that's actually an evil oligarch <laughs> who's imposing his image onto God. <laughs> God, in their view, is actually that we're made in the image of is a creative, loving force that's constantly creative, that yeah. is everywhere, right? And it everywhere creative, not not passive. Yeah. So, in that sense, you have to do good, and and that's where the idea of the the idea of a, a self perfectibility of of government that that has to build itself not around some crystallized finished state, but an something which is open enough, like the the American founding documents. They're, they're, they're the, the definition of self-perfecting documents. They're open to being made better. And it's built into, in order to form a more perfect union. They're not even saying to form a, to form a perfect union, we're going to do this. No, (laughs) that's ignorant. They knew it. Uh, they're, they're like, okay, this is going to be better qualitatively than what came before, but it's not the best. It can be made better implicitly, right? Which is why you're allowed to amend the constitution according to reason and discourse in an educated citizenry. Um, that doesn't work if the citizenry becomes, uh, dumbed down, di- abuse, like psychologically, uh, and emotionally, uh, kept infantile. Then you, you don't, that doesn't work anymore. Um, then democracy is just a tool of the oligarchy to get the mob to do what it wants, right? So you, it, it, the, the whole idea of a democratic republic, it's not a democracy. It's a democratic republic, as Ben Franklin said, when he's asked, like, what did you create? And, and, and that idea is it's cultural. You always have to have the culture leading the progress. Mm-hmm. They have to go together. But the progress, sometimes the progress can sometimes lead the culture, but it can't fall too far behind. Okay. <laughs> And, and that's where you get the crises that we currently have of people who talk about transhumanism. And, you know, they're like, oh yeah, science is great. It's going to take us to the next phase of, of evolution, but it's devoid of morality. It's actually anti-moral, right? It's, it's, and listen to Yuval Harari saying like the global useless class. Science has rendered most of humanity useless. And the best we could do is maybe give them drugs and video games to occupy themselves while they wait for uh, being culled by the elites, the game masters, right? <laughs> so all that to say this is the the opposition to the the manifest destiny idea the idea that you like they called it the continental congress as well and it wasn't just the congress of 13 colonies and it the idea was to get beyond the alleghenies the the mountains that were separating the the colonies from the inner continent so the continental congress was always the idea that it was in the destiny of this new republican order and i say republican with a small r right like like plato and and, and more and, and augustine type of order of being able to extend civilization but not to just suppress everybody into slavery or to pave over the world it's rather to both you know like provide extend civilization but for the better you can green a desert you don't just have to uh, abide by the you know the chaos that's implicit in nature nature is good by itself but we can make it better it doesn't make that by saying it people would say oh that means you think that nature is bad it's like no 
it doesn't mean that. Yeah. It, it just means it's like your chicken, you know, like I, I, if my chicken uh, gets too old to maintain my pet chicken, um, I might have to put it down. If I can't afford to pay for my kid's milk or the chicken, I might have to put the chicken down and eat the chicken for food, you know, but I would, if, could I apply that to my grandma? No scales are different scales, right? Like grandma's getting very expensive. Do I put her down and eat her? No, you don't do that. <laughs> so it's, it's like, it doesn't make the chicken bad. <laughs> um, so that was the idea. And so I'd say the, from the standpoint of my books of the clash of the two Americas, as, as well as the, the series on what, what has been Canada as, as a blockade against this idea of a proper manifest destiny as, as, a, as a tool of the British Venetian empire in the Americas. Um, it sort of tries to vector on that, um, that schism, including the fact that you have to identify anybody looking at this can't just treat manifest destiny as, as a blanket good. There's also evil variants of it, yeah. which have given it a very bad name um, that did extend, you know, slavery and destruction to the world. And that's what the Pax Americana idea of the, Ro- of the new Roman empire of, of the neocons, mm. that's where that comes from is the evil manifest destiny. Evil, right, that we're exactly. the best of the best, the, the, the elite class, you know, <laughs> the exceptional the exceptional stand uh, and the world is destined to sub- be subdued by our, our power says John Ashcroft, you know? Yeah. Right. Um, I mean, and then I, you get the liberal I, variety too. Sorry. Yeah. No, I just, I love this quote that you, that the way you explain the positive conception of manifest destiny, where you say it's the creative overcoming of limits to growth by a spiritual, intellectual, and economic extension of the best of civilization driven by a love for scientific and technological progress, where it's like, it's, it's all of it. Like it drives people to be their best. Like that is the true essence of the manifest destiny. Not this, like you need to be what I want you to be, <laughs> which is yeah. also like lower, you know, below. Yeah. Well, it's, it's like a kid, right? Like if you give a little child the opportunity, the, the, the kids instincts are, are always to go beyond themselves, right? They're not going to yeah. just settle on like, I'm happy with the three words I know now. <laughs> <laughs> they want to, they want to be better. They're, they're modeling yeah. themselves. They're trying to leap outside of their, their limits. Luckily they're, they're not bogged down by as much ideology or ego. So they're more free at making these discoveries and picking up languages. And then, yeah, you know, to learn and educate. Yeah. yeah. It's just like, that's, that's right there. That's, that's civilization. You know, it's a microcosm. <laughs> so you just got to like, let it be and give people the inspiration to want to be good and, and, and know that they should be, it's, it's, ha- you're happier. You're not, not even that you should be good. It's that you're, you'd be happier being good than, than satisfying your lower lusts that might result or will result in excess regret or pain in the future. Like true, true pleasure should not ever cause pain by right. like a platonic line of reasoning. Pleasure is self feeding. It's, 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 it's a, it's a, it's a principle. So anything masquerading as pleasure that results in pain in the form of like, I've had too much cake or, you know, I regret my stupid decision to have cake, shame, you know, or whatever, right? That's not real pleasure. It might, it doesn't mean you shouldn't have cake, but that's why temperance exists too, right? To, to have wisdom guide your, your belly, not your belly guiding your wisdom. Um, so yeah, I think that, that overall, when you look at again the the to, to pull it back to the present, when you look at the overarching policy of the Eurasian Alliance today, which has said no to the demands for canceling their ancient civilizations, to homogenize themselves on this altar of LGBTQ XYZ, you know, um, effeminization of of men in media and stuff, which Xi Jinping came down hard on, um, 
as well as just no depopulation, right? They're, they're pro putting forth cameralist programs that involve making people smarter, not dumber, uh, bringing them to a higher standard of life, not a worse. So, and also empowering sovereign nation states to have access to industry, not just the cash crop cropping single function zones, which right. is what globalization was wired on, or the British empire was right. always wired on, you know, you're allowed to, you got a lot of like land. So you just do wheat. You can't do int- industry because you don't, you don't have industry. So you can't do that because it's not in your comparative advantage. That's uh-huh. the, that's the rule of, you know, John Stuart Mill yeah. uh, and all British philosophers. And so, you know, uh, that's the opposite of what we see with full spectrum economies blossoming under the, the Belt and Road Initiative orientation. So anybody who says, again, China or Russia are, or, or any of their allies are just in on the great reset, they're not looking at things in a principled way. They're looking at it from the standpoint of pattern formation because why? Well, the great reset is based upon these, um, formulas of central command, um, of, 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 you know, like they can miss the words sustainability, the words, uh, uh, new economic order, um, things like that are all the words used by the, the, the great reset crowd mm-hmm. and everything evil. And thus, since I see similar words often being used in your, by Eurasian leaders and I see centralized commands there, I see, um, I don't think China really, um, the surveillance state thing is, is I'm not a fan of that, but I wrote an article on, uh, social credit and uh, the surveillance state of China as a distasteful necessity in an age of asymmetrical warfare. Why? What was my thesis? I was like, well, if you look at what they're dealing with, it's not like there's a world of just nation states just exist coexisting. You've got an active war to destroy China, which is unbroken since the opium wars. Yeah. Um, that's ongoing. And deep state fifth column penetrations on every level that have that been map all there. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you know those those opium wars too. That happened right around the same time that they were destroying our second national bank during Jackson's. Right. You know, ah. I mean, like, like like I just keep to see more and more like overlays again and again because all the goodness that was coming out of the 1880s or I should say 1860s all the way to McKinley. But even before then, because they knocked out a couple presidents, what, who was it? Um, remember, uh, Matt, you Harrison mentioned Harrison got yeah, knocked out. Yeah, Harrison. And then Zachary Taylor. But Harrison was like, yeah, like based on your national bank point. Yeah. Like he, yeah, he had the legislation that had been passed in, in Senate and the House of Representatives to create a third national bank oh, in 1840. On desk. Yeah. Honestly, on desk <laughs> waiting to be signed into law. And, uh, and that's when after three months of being the president, um, he like doesn't wake up one day, or I think he gets, I don't know, some stomach ailment and dies. Um, so yeah, that, that disappeared fast. And as soon as he's dead, the entire Aaron Burr apparatus that had killed the national bank takes back control again. You got now the, the, the Freemasonic, um, Southern slave power that soon takes control again in the, in the 1850s advancing and empowering the slaves, the slave society, the slaveocracy even more. People like the Giuseppe Mazzini networks of Albert Pike right. uh, become major power players in the federal government during this time before the Civil War. And um, yeah, Judah Benjamin, you know, this this hardcore, um, nominally Jewish, but again, not really. He's like this hyper high level Freemason intelligence officer who's the Secretary of State of the Confederate Forces ends up like. He's a high-level power player federally, and then he becomes one of the players in the in the Confederate uprising. Um, they're all being coordinated by Lord Palmerston 
who was again one of the high-level Freemasonic networks using a variety of hyper-satanic lodges. And you know, at the time, I've seen evidence that some of the lodges are fighting each other. Some like some of the lodges yeah. weren't uh, taken over by the satanic yeah. element. And it's kind of like one of the things that's just part of most people don't really have a technique of looking at this part when they're this aspect of history because they, they tend to notice that there's Freemasonic activity in a lot of places. And they, they tend to, uh, again, do that over simplistic yeah. rush stroke yeah. like they do with the Jewish uh, bankers mm-hmm. or the, the Jews as a whole. It's like all all evil. Freemason, Freemasonry equals evil. So any so thus Ben Franklin or George Washington or Mozart are all equally as evil as Giuseppe Mazzini and Albert Pike and Hitler. Right. Well, I mean, Hitler was part of the Thule Society, different different Masonic <laughs> order, but still evil. So the, um, the the thing is, there is evidence of different lodges having been created, trying to awaken or evoke um, a, a humanist tradition. That's even I've mentioned that there's a humanist tradition in the Vatican. It's not all evil. There's a humanist tradition in, in Masonry too, going back to the days of ancient Athens uh, and well ancient Egypt of city builders that 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 saw human beings as something special that had to be made uh, in the, that were made in the image of God and that had to be cultivated in that way to, to be, to have their potential awoken. Um, that's, there's evidence of that going back a long time, always at war with this other thing that will use everything uh, to its advantage and rot everything from the inside. So I would say by that, by that point of the mid eight, late 19th century, most of the positive elements of, of Freemasonry had been expunged for the most part. Especially in Europe. Hey, Matt, in 1812, or right prior to the War of 1812, and and when the bank was up for renewal in 1811, right? Mm. The the first bank of the United States. Mm. There's 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 been always this out there in 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 different literature talking about how Nathan Rothschild was going to say, you know, if you don't renew the charter, we're going to go to war with you. Like it's there seems to be some confusion about what happened right in there around these banks, the war. I know Napoleon was over there doing, you know, like, like what's okay. the tr- what is the truth about that? I'm just curious. All right. All right. So um, Napoleon was a bit of a mixed bag. Um, there were good people inside of France, like Gaspar Monge and others who had a lot of influence in the French courts and who avoided having their heads cut off during the five years of civil war, where the French revolution, instead of becoming like an American revolution, right which it should have been, Ben Franklin organized really heavily to have that as the first, if, if it was going to become successful in France, then it was going to, he had the stage set up for a series of follow-up chain reactions with a Polish Republican revolution, uh, British, you get, you get people in Britain who were even like good people who were installed who were, well, that was going to probably happen way later. Anyway, in Prussia, you had, uh, you had that uh, Beethoven and Mozart were both part of these circles, as was Schiller. So there, there was a lot of hope for this new age of reason that would over uh, replace the hereditary structures of might make right. right. And, uh, but it had to work in France. And that's why the British put so much effort. That's chapter, I think, three of my, my volume one of the, the yeah, Clash yeah, of the yeah. Americas. The British put a lot Jacobite. of effort into yeah. turning that into a, a, a Jacobin yeah. color revolution where all of the, the qualified leaders we're all equally labeled with a, oh, you're, you're part of an elite. You're, you're part, you're, you got riches. You're a scientist off with your head, you know, and, and, and all the qualified people had their heads cut off along with corrupt people. It was just like the mob became weaponized. Um, 
which was again used again in, in the Bolshevik period. It was again used all over the 20th century. It's sure. being used again today. So um, the thing with France, when Napoleon came to power at first, he was promising to be like a Roman Republican consul. And uh, people had hope. They were like, okay, you know, the Roman Republic wasn't so bad. It wasn't evil like the empire. And uh, it was very, it didn't take long for people to realize that, no, he meant the empire. He didn't mean the Republic. (laughs) (laughs) But despite that, um, it was ongoing war for like 20 years from 1795. And um, the thing with uh, the better people who represented that Augustinian tradition, like Gaspar Manch, who managed the Akhapati Technique, um, um, these were people who they they were able to influence Napoleon in a variety of ways at different times towards supporting good policies that were beneficial to the people. At other times, Napoleon's one of these like he's not his own man. You know, he's got a giant ego, very little frame of body, and little other things, and so he's he's compensating for a lot. And uh, and you know, sorry, let me just let my cat out of my study here. Okay. Um, so, uh, he's, he's easily malleable. He's, he's got people around him who will often use him as a tool to destroy. And sometimes when he's got a good advisor, he'll listen to them and and be a tool, an instrument for some good at a, at a certain point. So he's not, he's not so easy to just characterize. Some people are, you can do that with some people, but not very many in terms of like simplistically. Okay. You're, you're evil. (laughs) I get it consistently. Some people are mixed. Napoleon, I would say, was was a bit mixed. Um, all that to say, to play into two elements, the bank and, and Manifest Destiny. Um, a big part of Manifest Destiny is, as a policy, a successful one, came with the uh, something negotiated primarily by Alexander Hamilton, even though right. um, it was Jefferson who, who signed it off. And Jefferson was, again, a mixed bag. Right. Right. Not all, not all good, not all bad. Right. Um, definitely a big problem with slavery. <laughs> right. the fact that he he was really happy <laughs> keeping his slaves in, you know uh in place and not even giving them their their liberty after he died whereas at least washington was like okay after i die everybody can go free jefferson no nah. <laughs> not even though not even the slave that like birthed his, his i know <laughs> yeah, it's like what are you doing so anyway uh when he was president um napoleon who was short on funds really needed cash um, the idea of having French colonies in the Americas under Louisiana, like this whole Louisiana territory was way too unsustainable. And so a negotiation was settled to buy Louisiana, um, from Napoleon, which was perfectly good. I mean, that was a big, that America grew something like, I don't know what 300% of its landmass or more was increased Huge. by that point. Huge. Uh, and the idea always became, well, how do we then now bring civilization into this wilderness, right? There's there's a lot of variables. There are uh, many, many native tribes who are friendly to us. Many native tribes have been commandeered uh, by Jesuits from uh, Quebec, which had a, a Jesuitical basing for a long time. I didn't even bring in the Jesuits into the story, and maybe that's for another show. But okay. <laughs> yeah, the Jesuits, they were cult creators. They liked, they would... Yeah. They would be able to, um, they, or at least the higher level, there's lower level Jesuits who meant well, but I think at the higher level, it kind of worked like a Masonic rite of initiation. And as you got up the, the hierarchical command structure, um, often in sort of Kabbalistic ways from what I'm seeing, when you look at like Loyola, Ignatius Loyola's uh, meditations, very Kabbalistic in terms of self-induced hypnotic trances to convince yourself that 
if your authority in the chain of command wills that that white be black, then it must be so. Um, and absolving yourself of the acts of sin committed by you, even if just because you were given an order to do something evil, it's not evil if it was given to you as an order by somebody who had the mandate of God in the chain of command. Right. So that takes a lot of self-induced uh, deconstructionism, which you again see with the Kabbalistic techniques as well. Yeah. Um, all that to say, so the, the, the pioneers had these elements of like um, Jesuitical psyop mini cults that masqueraded with partial like quasi-Christian uh, groups of native bands, Algonquins and others, Mohawks that had some of their, their tribal aspects mixed in and infused with the Jesuit uh, handler as sort of the, 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 the hand of God that everyone would treat kind of like a quasi deity. And, uh, and Schiller even, even writes about this phenomenon in the Jesuitical government of Paraguay. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, whole other side note. So they, they had a lot of variables to deal with, um, but that they pushed on um, the Lewis Clark uh, uh, work was one aspect of that. But coming out of this process, the, the National Bank, which was sort of, this was Hamilton's baby. This was like the, the thing that would give the U.S. the economic sovereignty it needed to break free of being a cotton agricultural plantation export zone for Europe into becoming an economically sovereign, industrially advanced society, which it wasn't. It didn't have hardly any industry. Um, yeah, hardly any. And it was bankrupt in uh, after the the American Revolution, totally bankrupt. Each state was bankrupt. They had no common currency. Every state was at war with each other. It was only a matter of time before the the early states were going to be reabsorbed back into the the British Empire uh, during the 1780s. Uh, the Confederate the 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 Articles of Confederation were useless. I mean, there was no central government. There was no ability to enforce taxation or or tariff. Couldn't do anything. So, yeah, like the, the Hamiltonian First National Bank was set up to resolve that, and it worked quite well it, in terms of creating a unified currency. It federalized all the state debts, and it created an ability to have things like, with the constitutional powers that were also coincident with that, it gave the federal government an ability to, to have um, a protectionist policy to favor the development of local industries. It provided credit for entrepreneurs. Um to have low interest, large scale credit for building for their business, but also big projects that were in the state and national interest, like the Erie Canal and other internal works. So this was all what created what's called an anti, remember at the beginning of our conversation, I brought up entropy, anti-entropy. This was like really anti-entropic. The American population went from, it, it quadrupled its population in the first 45 years under this policy by creating more wealth than you formerly had in the previous system. So the same money is moving around, but the money, the buying power of the dollar is qualitatively now different than it was previous. So because your whole system has qualitatively upgraded, right? With new discoveries, new inventions, new productive processes, you're you're free from the old burdens, the old limits. So that worked. Um, There was always a fifth column, especially inside of Alexander Hamilton's Federalist Party of these... uh, what are called the uh, the Eastern Establishment families, yeah. um, the Cushings, the uh, later on the Harrimans came out of this. But I mean, a lot of these opium families who worked with the British on the opium wars and opium, they, they made their wealth that way by stealing and, and, and selling drugs. Um, they were concentrating themselves in uh, the Federalist Party. So once Hamilton was killed, 
um, that became a party of mostly evil, the pickerings, other things. And they, they, they were working hard to subvert the national bank from within. And, you know, yes, it had a, an allowance for private investors to be, uh, to have an interest in the bank, which is why people often say that it was a Rothschild bank, um, because it was private and sort of like a proto, um, federal reserve. 100 years before the Federal Reserve. That's the that's the mythos that's been created. Yeah, right. Uh, because they say, look, it, Hamilton and it, he allowed private investors to buy in stock into the bank. So it's a it's kind of like a quasi private bank. No. Yes, you were, he allowed private private interest to buy stock, but he also made a point that you to be on the board of directors or to be the the head of the bank, you have to be an American. You can't be foreigner. He made a point that the federal constitution has to always be the driving force of the behavior of the bank. Policy can't be made from a foreign investor. The, a foreign investor, it's like a business. You can invest in a company and it will give you returns if it's a good investment, but it's not going to be the case that you can necessarily tell the company what to do. Right. Um, and just look at the actions. Like I said, the population under the national bank, it quadrupled in a short period, which was like, it freaked out the Malthusians in England who were like, no, that's against the laws of population. You can't do that. <laughs> You're going to cause more scarcity faster. Um, so you had that. Now, at the same time, the bank's charter was was ending. It was a 20-year charter. And um, Britain was adamant. While they were fighting Napoleon, they were also fighting um, – uh, or, or Napoleon was also fighting um, Russia. So there was this French-Russian conflict that was starting. That's where Napoleon gets his ass kicked. Um, Britain um, is using this opportunity during this period of conflict with Russia, which is now kicking kicking in. It's getting hotter and hotter uh, to basically undo the American Revolution. There's a lot of chaos inside of the USA still. The, the fifth column is amplifying their power after, after Hamilton is killed. Keep in mind, Hamilton, though he doesn't like Jefferson, he fought like hell to make sure Jefferson became president. So Burr wouldn't get there. Yeah. 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 And he knew Jefferson was like one of these mixed bag characters. He's like, he's, I don't like him, but he's not a traitor. He's not going to willfully kill his country the way Burr openly wants to. Like Burr was at the heart of three different attempts to dissolve the union and put himself as dictator of either the Northern Confederacy or the Western Confederacy uh, that would take part of Louisiana (laughs) and, and basically depose of the sitting president Jefferson in 1807. Um, and set himself up as the the you know pro British uh, king of of the USA, and uh, and that's what he was caught. That's why he left America to avoid arrest. He didn't leave him. He didn't escape America after he killed Hamilton in, in a duel. People sometimes think that it wasn't 1804 that he he killed Hamilton and he was happy. Um, but he, he it was three years later after he was caught, and there was a court case where there was whistleblowers who were in on the conspiracy that was run out of. Andrew Jackson's house. Yeah. Comes oh. to work in the, the uh, yeah, that's what we're talking about. <laughs> and, and, and then mysteriously shows back up right before the war of 1812. Mm. <laughs> Super convenient, like weeks before. Yeah. And, and immediately <laughs> like he just starts, after five years of doing what, where's, what's he doing <laughs> in England? Hey, the guy's living in the house, the manner of Jeremy Bentham, the head of British intelligence. And in his diaries, he's saying that this is the, the best time of my life. What is he doing at the at, at Bentham's house? The guy who like writes in defense of pederasty, hardcore opium, prostitutes, orgies. Like this is Hellfire Club stuff that Aaron Burr is just like, 
sucking it all in, basking in, <laughs> and, and having meetings with Lord Castlereagh, the guy who's orchestrating the league, the, the 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 Congress of Vienna, the restoration of oligarchies in in England and oh, wow. that's bringing wow. back the Jesuits into the the power play from because they had been expelled for fifty years from Europe, right? From seventeen seventy three, the Pope who dies of probably poisoning months afterwards he expels the jesuits i think it's clement the third and they're not allowed to be in in europe and they they're gone for 50 years their their new seat of operations is is moscow um and it's only with the congress of vienna that the jesuits are reinstated as a police force to enforce the, the oligarchical structures oh. so you know you got this whole thing and and this is who aaron burr is meeting before he's then like set up with a new a new game plan to go back into the u.s right when britain is about to declare war um and there's a whole i mean it's messy there's a there's books that have been written about like the causes of the war but i guarantee you it is not because the rothschilds wanted a, a, a second national bank i that is there is no evidence that that's actually true there are accusations that people just say it and because it fits within an explanatory model that they're really emotionally connected to they they just like take it in and they're like yeah that's that's exactly what happened. They they wanted the Federal Reserve, and that's why the, the War of 1812 happened. No, no, not at all. And and it was coming out of the War of 1812 that that's where you have, or during that war, which only ends a couple of years later, um, that's where Aaron uh, Burr is the first person on record to to write, I think, to his nephew that uh, we have to put all of our efforts into getting Andrew Jackson elected president. The guy who basically turns the U.S. from a citizenry that could think in a sovereign way into a a mob of frenzy of people who would just, you know, give up their individual out individuality to abide by some like mob rule. And that was what democracy became under under uh, Jackson, especially it was already going down that path with Jefferson. Um, and everybody thought, oh, yeah, he beat the bank. What a great guy. He killed the bank and he paid the debt. What a hero. It's like, no, once what's happened once he killed the bank? bank panic right like right away he, he completely deregulates the economy gets rid of protectionism brings in british adam smith free trade speculation the bank the banking system goes haywire um he pays off the debt sure but then what what else happens well all of what was the debt doing it was funding the Erie Canal. The country yeah all of the projects the, the internal improvements were all seized up they stopped being built and everybody went bankrupt who were, who were doing things that were productive. So it's like what the IMF has been demanding that Greece or other nations do, you know, like you've got to do austerity right. to pay your debt and stop your internal improvements and privatize your, your state companies to pay your debt. That's your, your, you know, number one sin is not paying debt. So he died, you know, that's how he dies happy with a, his tombstone saying, I paid the debt. And yeah, the, the, the U S is broken up. Every, every state is all of a sudden granted the authorization again, like in the Articles of Confederation to like issue their own local currencies. There's like 2,500 local currencies all of a sudden being created. No, no harmony of the nation, no ability to get anything done. And things just dissolve and dissolve and dissolve until you get, you know, the slave power Thank rising you. and rising and rising in power. Cause you know, the British love buying cotton from the Confederate South. They become like the most economically powerful like zone of the world behind Britain. Um, so it's, it's money bags, corruption, you know, the whole, t whole way through. And, and that's what Lincoln has to then resolve. You know, that's pretty amazing too, that we had Madison Monroe and John Quincy Adams, you know, like they actually, those Brits had a lot to, 
to infiltrate with those three in there to even get ja- like Burr must have been working overtime to get Jackson even in there with those guys before him is what I'm thinking. Oh, man. You know? Yeah, absolutely. Like, no, like those are power hitters that were changing our country and putting us right on track. You know. Oh yeah, no, they. I mean, you're really. It's, it's amazing the, the 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 moral insight from leaders in those days before Jackson. Right. It was such high quality, and yet you know, despite that, there was still something of a of a cultural Achilles heel that the British were able to identify, capitalize on, inflame, and uh, and cause us to. And I say us, you know, collectively. I'm yeah, my, yeah, heart, sure. my heart is American in that, in that sense. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but to, to undermine ourselves and to, and to do the things that Shakespeare was trying to warn us not to do when he was writing his tragedies, you know, don't be like a Hamlet, you know, don't be a Romeo and Juliet. Don't, that's his tragedies were like a messaging to the people to say, okay, well, when you have great potential and you give into lower prejudices and your lower self and, and, and all these things, right. you will be a tool for evil and you will undermine yourself. And that's what happened with the, the, you know, people giving their support to the, uh, the new parasite class. And yeah, as we would say, acquiescing to like killing natives, you know, the Trail of Tears that Andrew Jackson uh, wow. led. Uh, I mean, holy shit, the, the killing of thousands of Cherokee and emptying out all of the, the the areas that the Cherokee had been living on for generations, emptying them out, and then giving that land over to the slave power oligarchy to then run run cotton. Um, that was. To say he was like somehow a, a patriot is the biggest lie. I mean, this guy was the Rothschild stooge, and the and they've convinced us in a lot of these like reframing of narratives right. that actually the Rothschild stooge is the great hero, and and the great hero who dies, who's shot defending his country, at Hamilton, is the Rothschild stooge who's evil. We're told, you know, it's like the Khazaris, like the, the the one of the key areas that was instrumental in defeating the stranglehold of Venice and the and the Empire. Um, as part of this ecumenical alliance is the evil one. And, and, you know, if anything, Venice is the poor victim of the, of, of the Jews. It's like, they, they just turn everything inside out by giving us a lot of truth. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, you know, the Twin Towers was an inside job. You know, Kennedy was killed by an inside job, don't you? You know that there's international bankers, right? Don't you? Yeah, we know that too. Here's how it all happened. And then once, once, once your, your, your inner sentinels are down, right? Cause you trust this person. It's like, they, they know what you know. But they know so much more now. They, and now you're like a kid, you know, just give it to me. <laughs> yeah, all the Trojan horses. <laughs> <laughs> That's how I feel like with you. I'm like. <laughs> well, hey, you know, we've gone on a long time. We probably want, you know, we could probably keep going, but let's, yeah. you know, let's do another one at another time yeah, when you can fit us in. We, we could pick, we, hey, we could pick right up off of where we just left and keep rolling. <laughs> You know? Absolutely, let's do it. And yeah, I'm, like I'm, I, Cynthia and I are just finishing volume three of the. Uh, oh, the we can't wait. Circus, so hey. maybe that could be a good kickstart. Yeah, hey, here, here they are. Let's show the books. Yeah, yeah. The, yeah let's show these books. Oh, you got that one. I got the first one. Wonderful books and the Untold History of Canada, which. Yeah, I read the first two yeah. already and half the third. And you're, man, you're ahead it. of me. I'm like, I gotta, uh, it's I just, like I have I to train to my brain again to learn how to like read and absorb so much information. Like it's so cool, but I'm just like, okay, I gotta like read and then process, read and then process. Yeah, I, I hear you. No, it's good. It's good. No, I tell people like, you know, people are like, oh, what do you, what's, what's your secret? Like, how do you do research? Do you read, like, do you have speed reading techniques or something? I'm like, no, 
read slowly. <laughs> yeah. I read very slowly <laughs> and I reread pages several times over and think about it. Cause yeah, exactly. yeah, people try to like process too much and nothing stays in there. And, and it's like, yeah. no, nah, it's not the way to do it. Yeah. And it's hard in this day of like information overload. I, you know, we're, we're all fighting it. I, I fight it, you know, going on telegram and like trying to keep up with like world events and everything's like splattering at you. Yeah. 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 You probably uh, <laughs> way more than I can. I just can't handle so much. It's like, got to keep it to a minimum, but yeah, I do yeah, enjoy. Yeah. Uh, well, one good thing is, uh, my friend, um, in Ottawa, Hugh, uh, Hugh Trudeau, just, uh, he's got a wonderful professional, um, acting voice and he just narrated, um, volume one. So that's pretty much wow, done now. And I'm just trying to figure out how to upload that. So people will be able to get the audiobook version finally. And so I think that's, that'll probably help if I, if I think there's more audio options for a lot of these books and articles. Yeah, I know. I, I learn well by listening too. So yeah, yeah, that would be fantastic. That was a huge job. (laughs) Yeah. Well, it was only the volume one. And it was it was a huge job. It was. Crazy. I mean, even volume one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> hey, any, any, anything we can do to help educate people, right? I mean, obviously, we're all being more creative to do zooms, or yeah. like even you taking your lectures that you guys probably used to do in person, taking them out to the Zoom. Like we're trying to be as adaptable as we can to the the culture, kind of, and at the same time, not lose our any of our heart and soul in the midst of it all. I think is important, you know. Well, that's the challenge, right? Like, like how you use totally. technological, technological advance always has like a bit of a, a corrupting quality in the sense that as soon as you have something more technologically advanced than you previously did, you, you are, um, you will have more abundance in some ways, right? You'll, you'll have sure. less reliance on your memory. Like if you have now right. uh, the written word, that technology all of a sudden renders your, your obligation to have the muscle memory, uh, you don't have to have those muscles anymore. You can rely on the written word. So your, 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 your obligation to use those things diminishes, you know, just even having my, my, my phone. Now, I remember when I was in the nineties before I had one of these things, I used to remember, I had like 30 phone numbers in my memory when we I was all a kid. Did. First you did. Yeah, yeah, we we all did, right? Yeah. <laughs> and now I can't remember two, you know, I, I got mine. I had, I literally forgot my husband's phone number the other day. I was trying to punch it in and I was like, shit, I was like, what is it? I'm like, I should definitely know his number. <laughs> Exactly. So like the Yuval Harari types would be like, well, that just means that human beings are destined to be irrelevant uh, as uh, AI and machines replace uh, us. <laughs> and, um, you know, I think having these be... conversations prove that, that we are more than that. Like, exactly. Yeah. exactly. <laughs> definitely. Best of all possible worlds. Yes. All right. Hey, Guys, it's a pleasure. Hey, hey, yeah. We'll definitely, uh, we'll put all your links down. Uh, we'll have Brandy send you the tape so you can, you know, do as you guys wished with it. And, um, yeah, man. Much love and lots of blessings to you, you so and Cynthia. Much. Thanks so much, Matt. For much love to you guys too. It's always a pleasure. And yeah. I'm looking forward to our, our continuation. Absolutely. Right Have a good Bye. evening. You too. Bye. Take care. Bye.